power on. I'm not saying that we should all give up the life support science and technology that our rationalist way of doing things has given us and come here to the foot of Everest, reject the world, and meditate. Just that non-scientific views of the world, like this, aren't necessarily ignorant. In their own way, they explain the universe as completely as science does. And as you've seen from this series, all that science gives us is what their belief gives them. Certainty. Only ours changes all the time. Theirs doesn't. As for the permanent values that are supposed to remain unchanged in spite of our changing knowledge, well, they change too. Once it was good to burn women, wrong to claim the earth went round the sun, logical to argue about angels on the head of a pin. The values change every time the universe changes, and that's every time we redefine a big enough bit of it, which we do all the time through the process of discovery that isn't discovery, just the invention of another version of how things are. And yet, in spite of that, we still go on believing that today's version of things is the only right one. Because, as you've learned from this series, we can only handle one way of seeing things at a time. We've never had systems that would let us do more than that. So we've always had to have conformity with the current view. Disagree with the church, and you were punished as a heretic. With the political system, as a revolutionary, with the scientific establishment, as a charlatan, with the educational system, as a failure. If you didn't fit the mold, you were rejected. But, ironically, the latest product of that way of doing things is a new instrument, a new system that, while it could make conformity more rigid, more totalitarian than ever before in history, could also blow everything wide open. Because with it, we could operate on the basis that values and standards and ethics and facts and truth all depend on what your view of the world is. And that there may be as many views of that as there are people. And with this capable of keeping a tally on those millions of opinions voiced electronically, we might be able to lift the limitations of conforming to any centralized representational form of government, originally invented because there was no way for everybody's voice to be heard. You might be able to give everybody unhindered, untested access to knowledge, because a computer would do the day-to-day -day work for which we once qualified the select few in an educational system originally designed for a world where only the few could be taught. You might end the regimentation of people living and working in vast, unmanageable cities, uniting them instead in an electronic community where the Himalayas and Manhattan were only a split second apart. You might, with that and much more, break the mold that has held us back since the beginning in a future world that we would describe as balanced anarchy and they will describe as an open society tolerant of every view, aware that there is no single privileged way of doing things. Above all, able to do away with the greatest tragedy of our era, the centuries-old waste of human talent that we couldn't or wouldn't use. Utopia? Why? If, as I've said all along, the universe is, at any time, what you say it is, then say...
accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo, it is time for the best in professional podcasting, baby. The Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Sob Zoo, the rated R radio star, here for you for this latest episode of Sovereign Tech. And baby, it is a special one. Why? Because on the day that this gets released, December 21st, 2020, we'll be celebrating. You know, I, I say it all the time. I say, you know, we'd be going a decade strong. Well, I'm rounding up a little bit because we are celebrating today the eighth anniversary or podcast anniversary, uh, as a friend called it. Uh, <laughs> we are celebrating the eighth anniversary of Sovereign Tech, eight years ago to the day, December 21st, 2012. In fact, it was the day, yeah, it's the winter solstice, I know that, but it was the day that the world was supposed to end. And I said, well, I will ring it in with some Sovereign Tech, baby. <laughs> I, I, I released it. I made that my start date completely on purpose. Now, I had already begun uh, earlier um, on free talk live and, you know, kind of gotten my name out at the time. Don't worry. I'm not going to give you a whole history lesson on sovereign tech here. You know, where, you know why you're here, you know, you've been here for however long you've been here and you're loving it, but let's keep going. But I had started, you know, a little earlier and I had been on other shows before then, and it was all kind of leading up to, okay. And then, you know, one day I announced that here it is, here is my baby. Here is sovereign tech. And we're going forward. The irony being is that 90% of those shows that I appeared on in the past are long gone, long gone. Uh, the average podcast does not last seven episodes, let alone eight years. And I told you eight years ago in episode one of Sovereign Tech that I was in this thing for the long haul. This was not a flash in the pan show. It's not going anywhere. It's what I do. And this show still is eight years later with podcasts, you know, as a podcasting, as a medium being hotter than ever. This show is still my primary, I don't want to call it my gig because that's insulting to what the show has become and what it is and what it means to so many people around the world. But it is still my main thrust. It is still the first thing I think, well, Okay. Maybe it's the second thing, <laughs> but, but minus, minus Ellen, <laughs> of course, uh, it is the, you know, so I'll say second thing. It is the second thing that I think of every morning when I wake up And this show. And certainly this will be a, 
we're, we're going to do some, some special things in this episode because we haven't done a good Q and a, we haven't gotten into, you know, into questions that have been sent into the show in a good while. We're going to get into some of those. Uh, we have subjects that we, I feel like we need to talk about to close out 2020, but let me assure you of this as we come on strong to episode 400 in 2021. I mean, that's going to come up fast. That could come up before, you know, basically the first episode of 2021. That's going to come up fast. And let me assure you that 2021 is going to be a hell of a year for Sovereign Tech. A lot of things coming to fruition. Uh, there, there are things going on behind the scenes. I'm not going to talk of, I really can't talk about right now, um, but that are going to come to fruition in 2021 that I can't wait to tell you about. The show is as big as it's ever been. The audience numbers are higher and higher every single year. It just gets higher. Um, we have new sponsors that are coming on board. Free Talk Live, uh, one of the long-running sponsors of Sovereign Tech, has re-upped for 2021 because that has done so well for them. It is, in the truest meanings of these words, it is an honor and a privilege for me to be able to continue to do the show for you to care for you to want to listen to me for two hours, you know, every week. Remarkable. I'm so honored by everyone that's been along for the journey. And this journey is far from over. We've got, uh, well, again, I, I see, I, you know, I can imagine, I can, I can fantasize in my own mind, uh, you know, where I want to be say, you know, it's always good to have a five or 10 year plan, right? And I can, I can fantasize maybe where I want to be in five years. And as far away from civilization as that may be, let me assure you, I never, ever imagine not doing this show and everything else that spawns out, uh, that, that sprays as lava from the volcano that is Sovereign Tech. So don't you worry. I'm here, baby. <laughs> Eight years later, when... The dust has settled and so many other shows have gone the way of the dodo. Sovereign Tech is ready to bring you that action. Those unique, I dare say, unique or at least rare insights. Uh, and it's really evolved into so much more. You know, I used to I used to be a little, I mean, I, I guess I'll just say this at, at the onset. Really, I could have saved all this, I suppose, for, for the climax. But we'll talk about it here for, you know, just a couple more minutes. I used to say, and used to be very particular, like, Hey, this is just a tech show. I know that it's so much more than a tech show for so many of you. Um, I know that it has become so much more than a tech show. And I know that especially coming out of 2020, it needs to be much more than a tech show. Doesn't mean we get away from being a tech show. Never. Because that's essential. You cannot talk about existence for human beings in the modern world, in 2020, in 2021, without talking about tech. You just can't. Be it to embrace or warn against whatever direction you're looking at, depending upon the tech you're talking about. It's unavoidable. But I just want to recognize that. And as much as I can, I will keep myself from ever uttering the words, hey, it's just a tech show. I get it that it's not. Um, I know in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group, and oh, it's so beautiful. You know, I can't always, I mean, I, I am especially 
in, in, in 2021, this is going to, you know, I know my schedule is going to lighten up quite a bit. Um, but 2020 has been such a uh, nonstop, all engines go, uh, you know, kind of year. Uh, I know, I, I mean, I know so many people and I'm not boasting. Okay. Believe me, I'm not boasting. I'm not boasting. I'm glad that I, you know, have work in 2020 because I know there's a lot of people who don't. I know there's a lot of businesses that, I mean, it's bad news. But I see all of you in the Telegram group. Uh, I'm so honored by that. Of course, if you want to join it, uh, link is in the show notes, plastered all over the place. You can't miss it. There's like three or four places where the Telegram group is linked to. Just have Telegram installed, click the link, boom, you're in. Okay? Uh, But, you know, how, how... People in the Telegram group, certainly, as well as on Twitter, I've seen it. Uh, you know, you very, very, very accurately, uh, and I know, I, I mean, I've used the term uh, on the show, but I mean, you, you, you more reference it as the sovereign universe more even than sovereign tech because you know that it, it, you know, it's, it's so much bigger and so much more. And I'm really, really honored by that. And in 2021, I guarantee you, uh, it is going to be even more than it's ever been. And I already know it's been a lot, <laughs> so. Cause you're always getting something from me, you know, even if it's not a, a new sovereign tech, you're always getting a sovereign top eight or some other kind of conversation, or you're getting an episode of tie fighter renegades, which got another one of those hot ones coming. Oh, you think we're not, you think Rob and I are going to talk about what happened with the Mandalorian ending up, uh, you know, with, with its send off at season two. Woo. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That's coming up. Um, so, you know, there's, there's so much for you and there's just going to be so much more, um, very excited again, some of it, I, some of it, I can talk about, like there's books coming, some of the things I can't talk about, but we'll just leave it at that. And we need to get into talk about a lot of things to talk about. This is a jam packed episode. We have a lot of news to get into. I don't think I'm going to be able to get to every story and some things I may just kind of like gloss very quickly over. We, we might go very quickly over them. I don't mean to gloss over them, but I mean, we'll, we'll go over them very quickly. And because ultimately things that have happened, even just in the past couple of weeks, really speak to age old axioms, you know, throughout sovereign tech's eight year history. Or, you know, again, when you get to eight years, come on, call it a decade, right? <laughs> so, it'll be a decade soon enough, and I know I'll be here. Um, but a lot of it speaks to that. And I guess, you know, why don't we go ahead and start getting into this stuff, and then uh, we will get into our main story. Uh, and we have a story that I've been saving for a while and have promised that I would talk about uh, for at least two, three months now. And I want to get into it. It's evergreen though, actually pun there, but you'll get it when we get to it, uh, during HackSec. Then we're going to do a lot of Q and a, and then we'll see what we have time for to finish up after that. Uh, but let's get into episode of 397. but by all means, you know, anything you want to, uh, you know, you want to ring the bell, ding, ding, uh, and celebrate eight years of the, of seriously, you know, it, the hottest, damn podcast on the planet today. You can celebrate sovereign tech with me. Feel free to toss a tweet at me. I've already had some people do that. And I'm honored by that or mention the telegram group, whatever you want. Uh, but I'm so honored for everybody that's been along the journey again, even those who there, I know there are some of you who've been around since episode one. There are some of you who have been around only the past couple episodes and you're going through the back catalog and loving it. And I'm so honored by that. But anyway, all right, let's, let's do it. Let's get into the episode. Let's start talking about things. I want to open this up 
I guess we can briefly mention uh, what has been quote unquote confirmed. Um, So there was the solar winds breach and as well as much larger uh, there. And some of this I have tweeted about uh, where the Pentagon is basically claiming that code had been found, you know, in relation to nuclear installations, um, there is, and, and we need to have a deeper dive on this subject, but this is one of those things where I want to wait for more facts to come out. Basically you are having a lot of security experts come out now and say that, you know, cyber warfare has now officially fully, uh, begun, you know, like it, now, now it, it, it's the reality and we really, really need to be paying attention and doing something about it. Uh, I get it. I understand where they're coming from. I understand what they're, what they're saying. Okay. Well, here, here's, here's a headline and byline from, uh, from CNN. Okay. And this is just from December 16th. So just a few days ago, uh, why the U S government hack is literally keeping security experts awake at night. The U S government is reeling from multiple data breaches at top federal agencies. The result of a worldwide hacking hacking campaign with possible ties to Russia. Okay. First off, I'll give a little bit of credit, not much, a little bit of credit to CNN for saying possible ties to Russia. Cause I get, and this isn't anything new. We've talked about this many times. I, I get sick and tired of, you know, basically news organizations are rolling out the old, you know, communist Rusky, uh, boogeyman again, you know, let's blame the Russians. It's like, it's, it's like it's 1981 all over again. And it, it's such an easy target, you know, and very few people, you know, whatever. I mean, governments are governments and, and, and we got to get into, and, and they're all shit. <laughs> right? I'm not going to defend any of them for anything. Uh, I do think it's interesting that China doesn't end up, uh, so much. Well, th- there's, there's, there's big conversations to have around this. I mean, sometimes China gets brought up as the, you know, the evil, uh, uh, uh cyber enemy, but not nearly as much as Russia does. Now, certainly part of that is because news organizations, quote unquote, if the, any of those even exist anymore, news organizations, you know, love to have something that they can somehow tie to Trump because that gets instantaneous clicks and views and whatever else. So there's that, there's that incentive. Okay. Uh, and attacking China, or should I say the Chinese government can effectively hurt the bottom line of a lot of different companies who are presently, and particularly like say Silicon Valley companies and whatever, who are, who are presently trying to get access to, you know, the, the, the billion some odd citizens of China. Okay. And they don't, they don't want to fuck with that too much. And believe me, this is something, this is this, this idea of appeasing the Chinese government I mean, that trickles down to every sector, especially within tech, uh, right down to gaming, frankly. I mean, 
you know, we could talk about GOG not wanting to publish certain games on their platform and nobody really understands why. And then suddenly you realize, oh, this game had content that offended the sensibilities of the Chinese government. I bet GOG just doesn't want to lose their platform somehow being available in that country to that market. Mm -hmm. We're not going to talk about that during the gaming grid, (laughs) but I'm just bringing it up. Moving right along. Um, I get tired of that. And these, you know, that, that whole headline that I read for you from CNN, I mean, let's just make it abundantly clear. You think the U S government isn't doing anything that anybody's blaming the Russians for on other countries? Of course they are. Now that said, not even that, that's not even the point. The point with these top level hacks or uh, you know, cyber attacks or whatever, or cyber, actually, I guess the, the real term that should be used according to uh, OPSEC specialists would be cyber espionage perhaps, but regardless, here's the rub. Here's the thing here. Here's what, you know, cause CNN's like, Oh, it's keeping security experts up late at night. You know what? Not a single one of the, and, and, and I hate it because these supposed security experts are ultimately dishonest. Because here is the honesty, of course, that you get on this show. No organization, government, corporation, take your pick. No organization at anywhere near the size of, say, any nation state, you know, of a government or even just a government, just a government agency, doesn't matter which one. They, you, You just, you can't secure, you cannot be secure. You can't, there's no way you can secure organizations at that scale. It's not possible. And we could go down the list. Sony pictures, you know, that, that hires tens of thousands of people. You can't secure that shit. I mean, just the emails that go around in a company like that. Even if you set up everybody with Yubi keys and you keep them from phishing attacks and all this, I mean, just look, when you get into those numbers of people, the hundreds or even the thousands or the tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands. Somebody's going to fuck up. That's it's just, I don't want to call it human nature, but ultimately it is. Somebody's going to fuck up. It's unavoidable. You cannot, there is no such thing. Now, I mean, one could go so far as to say there's no such thing as perfect security anywhere. Yeah, I guess you could kind of make that argument, but there's certainly no such thing as not just perfect security, but even good security. When an organization is at the scale of say the U S government, there is no tech, there is no law, there's no code. There's nothing that is going to even begin to secure organizations at that scale. Even hell fuck. Look at Foxconn. Foxconn got, you know, at least one of their servers, uh, uh, whatever, you know, a ransom actually was a ransomware that got ransomware on it. I, I mean, you know, not even a company who who deals with things at, at such a low level like Foxconn or, you know, at such a base level like Foxconn does right down to the, you know, the chips. I mean, none, none you just, you can't when you, when an organization gets to beyond a certain size. And I would argue, I mean, it almost falls in line with, with Dunbar's number. When an organization gets to the size of, I don't know if you get above like maybe 20 people, I don't think you can, you can no longer really do tight knit security of any way of any shape or form. And when you live in a world 
that is based upon, you know, interconnected commerce and such interconnected digital communications. I mean, is this going to keep everybody up at night? I guess, but it doesn't mean you don't try to secure the stuff. Sure. You try, but we need, <laughs> they're selling it. You know, the, the, the media sells it to you. Like this is somehow, you know, there's some kind of digital arms race going on right now. I mean, part of the, if there is a digital, digital arms race of any kind, ultimately you can blame governments in general, right? Because most of the time they will buy say the zero days from varying, you know, uh, security companies. Okay. And they'll hold on to them instead of letting the tech giants or whatever company that needs to know to patch up their, their code, you know, or their software or do something about their hardware. Uh, you know, they won't tell them when that would be the way to secure everything, but any, any government or organization that holds onto uh, exploits and vulnerabilities of any kind in relation to the digital world is ultimately at fault. And I would say cannot complain when they get quote unquote hacked because they're part of the problem. Also, they're probably doing again, the same damn thing, but Ultimately, again, this is a issue of scale. And this is the old sovereign tech axiom that I was referencing. Okay. I mean, you know, there's, there's a book I've brought it up many times. There's a classic book well before, you know, computers were even really, or at least terribly interconnected, uh, called small is beautiful. <laughs> right. And it addresses this whole issue of scale again, totally pre-internet book. Um, but I think a lot of its points are very sound to this day that you really, you cannot do great security at that scale when that many people are involved or even when that many computers are involved. Cause I know what you, I know what people are going to say. It's like, well, you know, we're going to replace them all with AI, you know, all these people. And, and then, you know, we can't, well, what, you're just, you're just replacing people with code, you know, just like people can be social engineered. What do you think? AI is immune to this shit. Give me a fucking break. So, these people are just terribly dishonest. No one wants to admit, Hey, this is all screwed and none of us know what to do. And it's not just that they don't know what to do. There is nothing to do. You can't have networks this big and expect to have a modicum of security. I'm not the only person to say that there are plenty of other honest security researchers who will tell you, that when you get to, I mean, again, it doesn't even have to be governments. It could be a company like, like I say, Sony pictures or Foxconn or take your pick. When you get to that size, how would you even begin to do security there? You can't. That's great. Google implemented, you know, their Titan key system or, you know, slash UB keys, right? Hardware to, to FA. They implemented that and they have, they, they brought their phishing attacks down to zero. That's awesome. Okay. You solved phishing attacks, which happen through email, but then there's a ton of other security that has to happen within that because it's not all just email. And did you get that secure? Hmm. I mean, by all means shout from the mountaintops, your wins. That's great. And I'm glad that Google implemented the use of YubiKeys. At least it's something. But these people have to admit like, look, it's just, it's just not possible. And it's a shame that no one wants to admit to it because then maybe there would be some kind of a groundswell for people to admit, Hey, you know what? We just need to open source everything 
and just open all of this up because let's stop pretending that there's such a thing as security at the nation state level. And once you get to that admission, then it becomes, Hey, we're, you know, maybe I don't mean it. I hate the term unite. Fuck that. Okay. But basically you kind of come to this realization. We're all in this together. We're all living with this Leviathan. That is the interconnected, uh, you know, digitally interconnected world that we live in. Um, you know, we can't afford in fact, you know, this is, this is something, this is a point that, that many people have brought up. I didn't expect for the subject to get that big. This hell, this could be our main story. I have other stories I really do want to get to, but there's a pretty good argument. And I, and I've kind of brought it up as well, um, that the reason, you know, there aren't bombs constantly dropping through much of, uh, I'll use this term. Uh, we'll say the, the Western world, I hate that term cause it doesn't mean anything, but I guess to, to most people, you kind of have an idea at least of what that means. Uh, the reason that that sort of thing doesn't really happen is because everything is so interconnected that when you take out servers in the UK, it was, you know, say it would ultimately affect servers everywhere else around the world. And so we've gotten to a point where violence is, or, you know, dropping bombs is just too disruptive. <laughs> like, like if you do that, you don't just fuck, you, you know, you just, you don't just fuck with the enemy. You fuck yourself at the same time. And if there was this open admission of the fact that, Hey, guess what? We're all screwed. It does make me wonder what the world would be like and how people would react. Because right now, all of these supposed security researchers Again, they're might as well just call them security liars are trying to tell people, Oh, well, we can solve this. Oh, we can fix this. And of course, you know, the media is all over it. Like, Oh, fear, 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 fear. Where I'm telling you is that, look, if you just opened it all up, there'd be no need for the fear anymore. Granted probably have a lot of journalists out of a job that sucks. Or maybe they could report on good news. I don't know. And we, you could start to, you know, if you're all into conditioning people uh, with behavioral psychology, which they are, if you're into that, Maybe you could condition them to find good news exciting. Well, anyway, <laughs> and here I am telling you the, you know, the, uh, the sky is falling. No, no. <laughs> I'm telling you is that there's a golden opportunity here with the, you know, the supposed uh, rampant danger existing. As far as quote unquote, cyber warfare, cyber attacks or cyber espionage that there is a golden opportunity to really, really change things and, and just turn everything upside down for the better of everybody. And just admit, Hey, we're all fucking interconnected. I mean, I could get even deeper, you know, uh, into the philosophy around that, you know, the earth is a super organism, human beings themselves are super organisms. Well, I mean, we, we, you know, we could go really far with that, but out for here, I'll keep it to the tech. Speaking of servers, let's change it up. <laughs> Speaking of servers, let's get into some of our other stories. Woo. Um, and not good news. Uh, <laughs> it was December 14th, I think. Um, December 14th. And December 15th. It actually happened twice. I don't think as many people realized because it was later at night on Eastern time about the second one. But on uh, December, December 14th in the morning, it was like, eh, I want to say it was 9 a.m. It was like between 
or no, maybe it was like between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. Eastern time. A lot of Google services were, basically all of them, including YouTube, were down. Um, like emails weren't going out. Uh, I mean, Google Drive was down. Again, YouTube was running into issues. Uh, it was, it was you know, company-wide. Now, this very easily, uh, I mean, it was about 45 minutes that all of this was, or that all of this was down. Now, it wasn't down for everybody, but it was down for a large enough uh, group of people. And I mean, certainly Twitter was a light about it. In fact, it was funny. <laughs> I thought some of the tweets were, were dynamite because people were like, ah, you make fun of me for having my Hotmail account for 25 years, but woo, look who's still sending emails. <laughs> that was gold. Uh, you know, I, it highlights something for me because again, it also happened um, on the 15th and it was later at night. Uh, and there's a couple points that could be brought up about this. But there were, you know, basically emails as well as things that perhaps you typed into Google Drive. Um, you know, maybe you hadn't refreshed uh, the tab on your browser. However, that ended up taking shape. But bottom line being is that because of what had become known as hashtag Google down uh, on December 14th and December 15th, 2020. People lost data. And you want to talk about sovereign tech axioms. When you lose data, when a company loses your data, they at the same moment should lose your business. Now I get it. I understand how entrenched, you know, we are, and I say, we, I know how entrenched we are in Google's services. Okay. But this is your, this is your wake. I hate using that term too. This is your wake up call though. Okay. It's like that, that, that first big snow of the winter, right? That's if you hadn't put on your winter tires yet, it's your sign. Uh, okay. It's time for me to put on the winter tires before the next big snow, just in case you forgot. And you see all the accents, right? Because when that first big snow hits, a bunch of people aren't prepared. And somehow these morons, I'm sorry, these people, but I repeat myself, I'm sorry. These people, let's be nice. These people somehow, even if they've been living, say, I don't know, in, in the Northern climates, for their entire lives. Somehow they forget how to drive in the winter, even though they've done it for 30 some odd years. And it just becomes this odd little dance, right? And you just, and you hope that when that happens to you or when you experience it again, if you hadn't put your snow tires on yet, it's time to do it. Well, every time that you get these and, and I, I get it. In fact, it's funny because Google was basically saying the whole Google down event had to do with a problem of scale. Like we were just talking about. Basically there was data that just didn't, didn't shift properly <laughs> to other servers. I mean, they're still being kind of, kind of odd and how they're explaining it. It does not appear to be uh, a attack. It doesn't appear to be an exploit of any kind. It was just like data mismanagement that they, they couldn't handle. I mean, and that's not surprising because Google as a company particularly, but certainly as a search engine to say nothing of the, you know, the, the terabytes isn't even the word to talk about, you know, the kind of traffic, uh, you know, upload and viewing and all of that and streaming that, that YouTube deals with in five minutes every single day. 
But, you know, even just as a search engine, I mean, Google effectively <laughs> makes a co almost a complete copy of the Internet, you know, every, you know, whatever their, their, the, the time frame is that they do that with them. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, no shit. They ran out of base. I mean, the, the way it was that I read it, it almost sounded like they said, hey, we ran out of hard drive space. <laughs> what a surprise. Uh, but point being, OK, is that this should be your wake up call. In fact, we recently, in a recent episode of Sovereign Tech, I want to say it was episode 395, where we talked about where a person for, in fact, for reasons that he is still unclear about, his entire Google account got shut down. Well, that was as in he got locked out of it in this, you know, by actions based, uh, you know, Google deciding that somehow he broke their terms of service. Okay. This is a case where we all basically got locked out of our Google services, right? And I mean, and no one did, or well, anyway, <laughs> at least most people probably didn't do anything quote unquote wrong. And yet you didn't have access to it. If you, I mean, we, you know, it, it, a classic case to talk about would be like the Mirai botnet and we could go back that far. You know, I always call that the day the internet died back in 2015. Right. Um, but if you haven't learned from this, Again, yet it wasn't just like, oh, it's just one occasion on one day. No, it happened the day after as well. And it's going to happen again and again and again and again. If you haven't picked up on the fact that you need to differentiate, okay, you need to, to use the term, decentralize your use of services, as in don't have all your eggs in one basket. Don't have your email, your map software, even uh, your, you know, whatever your cloud drive where you do word processing, whatever that all, don't have it all be within the same company. Okay. Now, before anybody wants to say, oh, Stallion, you're contradicting yourself because you're going to say that, well, you don't, you always tell us have as few accounts as possible. Yes. Yes. But this speaks to a much bigger thing. This is something else that I think, you know, with hashtag Google down, as well as the story we talked about in episode, I, I believe is episode 395. If not, it was 394 where, you know, again, that guy and, and many others were just for no reason that they could understand were completely locked out of their, out of their Google accounts and lost everything that was in there. And go back and listen to that episode because you'll hear how much that was phone numbers, contacts. I mean, so, so, so many different things. Okay. I am not suggesting that you necessarily differentiate or decentralize by, okay, well, uh, all right. I don't want to use Gmail anymore. So I'm going to switch to Microsoft and use Hotmail. Now, if you want to use Fastmail, Hey, you know, we talk about them on every episode of Sovereign Tech. If you want to use Fastmail, that's great. Or you want to go to ProtonMail or something. Okay, fine. You know, I mean, email is something that maybe you want more managed offsite, but then don't rely on it. Okay. But the point I'm trying to get to is that I think it behooves you to really, I mean, because even if this were just growing pains, these are growing pains that are going to hurt a lot. And anybody that can ride these growing pains is going to come out a winner on the other side. You need to not create other accounts with other companies to have all these services. You need to have these services without having to create an account. And that's totally possible. For example, don't 
have your documents be in Google Docs, you know, on Google Drive. Have them be, you know, local. And you can do local backups, okay? Um, in fact, I would argue, don't even, I'd go this far, okay? Because if you think this the same thing wouldn't happen to Microsoft, you're kidding yourself. I would go so far as to suggest, you know, if you have to use Windows for whatever reason, I understand, okay? If you have to use Windows, even if you are using Windows, I would I would go with something like portable apps where you are storing all of that kind of all of that important information on an external drive, be it a micro SD card or an actual hard drive, whatever it ends up looking like. Okay. And you're doing all of it in open office that runs off of that. Basically I would not even save important information, important data like that, like doc, you know, documents and other things. I wouldn't even store that on a computer where I have to log into a Microsoft account. And the reality around Windows 10 is that 90% of what you do on the computer more or less requires you at some point to log into a Microsoft account. That's a dangerous proposition when you consider Google down, or even if you buy into this whole, you know, cyber nightmare that the U S government wants you to think is going on or, well, it is going on, but that they want you to think is somehow like against you or that is, is going to bring everything down when it doesn't have to. If you're not hearing what's whispering in the winds, it's telling you <laughs> have control of your own fucking data, use services that you can actually, you know, basically install locally, right? Do client side. And that ultimately don't really require accounts. But what about Google maps stallion? Get a Garmin. Really get a fucking Garmin. Or if you want to go so far, um, what, uh, Sigic? Yeah. You have to pay like, I don't know, 20 bucks or whatever to get access to everything, but you get like a lifetime account with Sigic. Here's the, here's the beauty of that. Like if you want to have these replacement services with Sigic for maps, uh, a, I think it's better than Google maps because it allows for a tailored and controlled offline map experience, but also it ties not to your Google play account it, or, you know, to, yeah, to your Android. Yeah. The Google play to your Google play account. It doesn't tie to that. It actually ties to whatever email you get and you can restore your purchases within Sigic and your history within Sigic. If you want just by that email address and that email address does not have to be attached to your Google play account. That's brilliant. That's a great way to go because you know, that's one less account that you're really opening up. You're not necessarily, you know, it's just, it's, it's not going to be tied to Google in, in that sense anyway. So there are plenty of options out there for you to go with where you get to take control of your data. And the next time hashtag Google down happens, you don't care. It doesn't affect you. And that's the position you want to find yourself in. In fact, we're really, this plays off of, we were talking about this, um, when Ellen was on last, that was episode 396. Uh, and I was talking about how people have gotten very comfortable. Like you think that you're just always going to have access to your phone number, you know? And so you don't really worry about it when perhaps, you know, you're a, an account uh, or something, some kind of a, a messaging app or whatever is attached to your phone number. 
and that, you know, you're not worried about ever losing that, that, that chat history, or perhaps that, that connection to other people, because you just think, well, why would I ever lose my phone number? When that can absolutely happen and very easily and for very little reason, you know? So, you know, we talked about that. That was in episode 396. And in fact, actually, there's a little bit I want to talk about with, with, with Signal, but this it does kind of speak against the use of Signal because Signal really does require that you have that phone number, right? We talked about that when, when Ellen was on. Um, but this is another issue is that, in fact, you know, yeah, let, let's shift gears on that. But point being is that you want to have you know, even the accounts you have to have, or the, should I say the credentials that you have to have should be something that's client side should be something that you have absolute control over and does not even necessarily require you to access a server somewhere. That's the best way to go. Okay. Um, but there was a story making the rounds earlier in December that, uh, was basically claiming talking about signal. I, I want to bring this up quick. Okay. Again, I have arguments for why to not rely upon Signal, okay, or why not to, to make it perhaps your, your default mode um, of communication. I can make those arguments, sure. Uh, but anyway, it, the claim was is that Celebrite, which is a company that develops technology that, like, like devices, okay, just to put it in simplest terms, they develop devices that allow law enforcement and whatever other agencies to be able to unlock uh, smartphones and get access basically to smartphone data overall. Um, I want to be abundantly clear on this. Okay. Uh, and they're, they're a company out of, out of Israel. Um, they did, they claimed, they did a whole blog post apparently claiming that they were able to crack signals encryption. That is not true at all. <laughs> like that, that, that did not happen. Not only did it not happen, it also isn't required to happen. And even signals, you know, the guy that, that basically, you know, started signal, um, Oxy Marlin spike, even he, I think came out and said, he's like, you know, you don't even have to crack signals encryption. All you have to do is break into the phone and then you can just open the app more or less. Uh, now, granted, you can lock the Signal app. Hopefully, you're not doing that with biometrics because, you know, if it's a life or death situation, how is how hard is it for somebody to just bop you over the head and knock you out and just, you know, use your thumbprint all day long? Yeah. Moral of the story, use passcodes. <laughs> um, or, you know, pins. Use pins, right? Anyway, so what they actually did or what it appears that this company actually did is that they were able to access um, the SQL database, okay, on the, on the smartphone, which would have somewhat of a message history on it, but they were able to crack that database. They were not breaking Signal's encryption at all. All right, let's make that abundantly clear. The Signal protocol was not cracked. Here's the thing, just like Moxie said, and as many others have said, you know, if you can break, oh, if you can get into the phone, if you have physical access to the phone, I mean, especially you, as if you were the owner of that phone that say celebrate some or somebody using a celebrate device got access to you're screwed. Just, just like, you know, just throw your hands up or, or, well, don't, don't give up. But I mean, just, just give up on whatever the fuck was on that phone. 
or that you're going to have any reasonable sense of, uh, of privacy or, you know, that, that nobody's going to be able to see what was on that phone. Should that make you completely reconsider your relationship with your smartphone? Of course it should. I know we're talking about some big stuff here, but we're coming up on episode 400. It's always good to revisit perhaps what you could call the basics, even though they're really, really big topics. Um, the, you know, again, kind of like Moxie said, well, they could just open the app. You know, if you can crack open the phone, which Celebrate is capable of doing, you know, getting access to the phone, uh, you know, they could just open the app. They don't need to crack signals encryption at that stage. That's true. Uh, the other part is, is that, look, if, and this doesn't even need physical access to the phone, any company, Google, Apple, Microsoft, just to name a few, any company that has, uh, you know, a, a, a log of keystrokes from the on-screen keyboard on your smartphone. I mean, if you have that, you don't need to crack into anything. You don't need to crack into the phone. You're just like, no, no, give, give me access to this, this person's, you know, keystrokes. And Android, as well as iOS, you know, they keep track of when apps are open. And you know that they do because you, I mean, just look at going to whatever digital well-being or Apple health, you know, look in there and you can see the metrics of this is how much time your screen was on. I mean, it tells you everything, you know, you gotta understand these companies absolutely know everything that you do with your phone and just attach the timestamps of when these apps were open with the keyboard log, you know, from the on-screen keyboard. And you're going to know what, what anybody said. You might not know what the other side said, perhaps, but you're going to know what somebody else was typing. And that's often enough, all that law enforcement or, you know, whatever criminal organization needs. I repeat myself. So there's no, there's no requirement. Like you don't have to break the encryption. That's why, you know, these arguments that keep happening and these bills that keep trying to get passed, you know, in various uh, uh, senates and, you know, governments around the world, even uh, not just in the U S where they're like, Oh, we want you to put back doors and encryption. And everything. You don't need to. <laughs> I mean, I, I almost get conspiratorial about that. It's like, it's all, it's, it seems like security theater or cybersecurity theater that, that that's going on because they, they act like they somehow need that when they don't, you don't even need celebrate devices. All you need is for, you know, swift key, which is owned by Microsoft for Microsoft to, you know, hand over the keyboard logs or Google or Apple. To say nothing of the other fucking little companies. I mean, at least those tech giants might push, might, they won't, but might push back against uh, varying governments. You know, like, I mean, little, I don't know, Flexi, whoever, whatever the other keyboards are called. Do you think those companies are going <laughs> to gonna go to toe for you against the government? No, not a chance. But bottom line being, signal the signal protocol was not cracked. Celebrate did not crack it. In fact, as I understand it, they even took down that blog post probably because honest security researchers came out and said, you people are full of shit. You didn't do that at all. You know, and then they fucked up. <laughs> so, which I'm glad when that happens. <laughs> I mean, I'm all, I'm all for that. Anyway, this opening has been going for a while. We have a main story to get into. We have so much more to talk about in this episode and I want to get to it. I'll be right back with some more sovereignty. Woo! Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes 
all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than free talk live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside. And not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. The main story. And we are back, you know, <laughs> I'm not, this kills me because I, I can just imagine some people are going to scream at their smartphone because it's likely what they're listening. Uh, in fact, we're going to get into this a little bit later. Somebody had a question about MP3 players that I want to get into during our Q and a segment, it's probably screaming at the smartphone stallion. What do you want us to do? Go back to the stone age while I may have wild fantasies about that. <laughs> no, uh, this it kills me every time I get these arguments, you know, it's like, well, what do you want us to go back to? It's like, what is this? The dark ages or something as if there was no such thing as civilization. In fact, high tech advanced civilization that existed before Google was a thing. I, I, there's a dramatic pause there folks. Yes. Okay. Just in case you had on your podcast app where it skipped over the dramatic pause, <laughs> there was a dramatic pause there because I want you to maybe think back a little bit. Okay. I know most of the people on Twitter, in fact, part of me wonders if people on Twitter are any, I don't even know if they're older than 13. Okay. Where, where they don't know that there was a world that existed before even the internet say nothing of Google. And I'm not saying we even have to go pre-internet. I am just saying that there were ways that these things were done. And we did it without everything being fucking interconnected to varying accounts that you have to be signed up for. Okay. So no, no one's saying that we have to go back to the dark ages. There is no Luddite here. You understand. Okay. I am saying that, okay, it's been tried what it's like to have all of this data under one big storehouse and it failed. And it keeps failing over and over again. Rethink things. Well, and we're going to get into that more when we get to HackSec. We have a massive story to talk about that has to do with dumb cities. And oh, yes, we're going to talk about it. But, you know, talk about kind of getting away, perhaps, from the screen or getting away from so many accounts. Well, maybe not so much that. Uh, for our main story, I actually want to get in a review. I love it when I get to do this. Um, I don't get to do it as often as I would like. And admittedly, also, there aren't that many new technologies that come out that really give me, you know, be it hardware or software, that uh, that that really get me all, uh, all hot and bothered. But one that did get me hot and bothered years ago, and I mean, we're talking back in 2018 when they ran their Kickstarter. Um, I finally got my hands on it. And we all know the nature of Kickstarters that, well, you know, even if they ever do come out, it might not be until years later. Well, this is one of those cases, but, <laughs> uh, but the company Astra house, 
who originally came out with what was called the, well, actually they're originally called Hemingway or, it, or their device was going to be called the Hemingway, but then they called it the free, right? We talked about it back years ago. This probably was more like 2015 when this, or 2014, even when this originally came out. Um, and it's basically a word processor that has an e-ink screen on it. Uh, you know, you hear that in and of itself and it's a fine idea. And the company Astro house, they basically, you know, sold it as, okay, look, you know, this is going to be your distra distraction free writing machine. Right. And that was, that was who they were trying to attract people who are writing novels, whatever. And it was just like a little on a very tiny, um, a screen on it that some people found impractical because you couldn't, you know, you'd have to keep scrolling back and forth to read everything that you had written. I mean, when you're talking about a novel that gets into, you know, I mean, where, where people could see that as kind of an issue. And so they in 2018, but the, now let me finish up on the free, right? Now the free, right itself was fairly successful. Okay. Um, and people, you know, the reviews for it were pretty exciting. I mean, just think of it as it's kind of like a e-reader, but instead it's an e-writer, you know, it has that e-ink screen. So, you know, your eyes aren't dying looking at the screen for hours a day. Believe me, I understand that. Um, I feel like all I do is write emails or write all day. It's, it's quite insane, <laughs> but, um, so the, the free write was successful. And I was always, I mean, I couldn't justify the price tag. I think, you know, whatever it cost a few hundred dollars. And I was just like, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't do that. Um, now when they announced the free right traveler, they were basically positioning this, this was their sequel product. And they were, they were positioning it as like an e-ink laptop. That, that was how the, the, the Kickstarter was more how I read it. Whether or not that ended up being the final design, as it were, or the final product, that's another story, and we'll talk about it because I'm going to review it here. But the Free Ride Traveler, the Kickstarter launched in 2018. You could get in on the early bird and a device that was supposed to sell, I want to say, for like 600 bucks. Um, you could basically get it, yeah, it's, it's $599, so it's 600 bucks. You could basically get it for like 270 okay? So, you know, more than 50% off on it. And at the time in 2018, I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> you know, I'll do it. And you were supposed to end up with the device the following June. I think they had originally said, um, hell, you know, it might not even have been 2018. No, I, yeah, I think it was 2018 uh, that that started. I was going to say might've even been 2017, but anyway, um, I think you're supposed to end up with it in the following June. They delayed it again. So June, 2019, you're supposed to have it. They delayed it to fall of 2019. And basically I was in, I guess the first 1000, uh, units that went out. We all, you know, people that, that, that have been, you know, that, that, uh, crowd crowdfunded it. We ended up with some of us, the first thousand of us ended up with our devices, um, at the end of October, 2020. So sometime after we were initially projected to get it. Yeah. COVID-19 happened and all I, I get it. Um, but regardless, it took a while, uh, and it was getting to the point where I didn't know if I was actually going to end up with the device. Now I generally save a couple of things like, um, there's the zap annual for Commodore, you know, that has to do with Commodore 64. Uh, I think it's Chris Wilkins who puts it out. 
Um, I back that every year, you know, but that's 20 bucks, you know, I mean, that's, that's nothing. Uh, I would, I generally do not crowdfund anything. Um, cause I don't trust anyone to actually put out a product. I've been in this game for too long or worse. Something happens like what happened with Oculus where they end up getting bought out by Facebook and the initial backers basically get nothing out of that. Uh, when I think that they are, you know, basically shareholders, um, but they don't get treated that way. So I have a, I have a problem overall with, you know, with, with crowdfunding in, in the vein of Kickstarter and Indiegogo, but you know, Astro house did really deliver a great product with the free, write. So I had some confidence in this, right. And I really wanted to, I mean, if you've been listening to sovereign tech for any amount of time, you know, how much we talk about getting away from screens. I wanted to get away from screens and an e-ink screen is easy on the eyes. So the idea of having an e-ink laptop, and I know that, you know, I know about companies like Mars and books and, you know, other ones who put out, you know, these kinds of smart devices that have an e-ink screen. I'm well aware of them, but something that's like a great typing experience and all this, I was really excited for. So I put down the money on it. Did end up getting it. Okay. I mean, you know, let, let's, let's be clear here. They, they did ship a product and it's a product that functions, you know, that, that does more or less what it says it would do. So credit where credit's due there, because you can't always count on that. And most of the time that doesn't happen, but there it is. So let's talk a little bit about tech specs here, but I mean, it, this is just imagine a smaller portable keyboard. Okay. That doesn't have a number pad or anything. And the device is a clamshell device that's about that size. Okay. Uh, where in fact, here I have the dimensions uh, pulled up right here. Uh, it is 11 inches by five inches by an inch, you know, when it's all closed. And when you open it up, of course, it's a little bit bigger and it has a, you know, the ink screen on it is I doubt, you know, that's probably barely, barely five inches here on the, on the actual uh, ink screen. So there, there's not, there, it's not a big screen at all, nor does it need to be. It's significantly bigger than the original free write, of course. Um, but this is basically, yeah, I mean, it's kind of an e-ink screen laptop, but all it can do is word processing. I don't have a problem with that, that all it does is word processing. That's fine that that's all that it does. I will talk about what my major, I have two major issues with it. And I will bring those up, but let's get into a little more of the, the tech specs, but I'll say this right off front. It works like it really works. It really does. You know, a lot of, of what they had said, but anyway, we'll, we'll save the critiques for a minute. Uh, so it's all plastic. You know, if you think spending $600 on something that, you know, can't even run a web browser is, is madness, uh, you know, for it to be plastic and not be aluminum or something, well, you know, that might be points off for you. I don't mind that something's plastic like that. That's okay with me. Uh, but regardless, you know, it is all polycarbonate. Uh, it does have the ink screen, um, I guess technically. So it actually has two little ink screens. Like there's, there's the big one, which the dimensions are 121 millimeters by 70 millimeters. And then there's a little status window underneath that can do, that can show varying things like word count. It can even show a clock. Uh, it can do different things. And that's 121 millimeters by 15 millimeters. So very small, your very thin screen. Um, then it does have, it is a scissor keyboard. It is full size. There's a full size right shift key, right? Which is always something that I'm looking out for, but, but it's there. Uh, it only has a 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi connection. 
So something to keep in mind. It doesn't have five gigahertz. And it has a, a USB, uh, has a USB-C port on it. And that's the only port on it. There is no micro SD card slot. That might be a key critique, but we'll save it. Uh, it has a, a type C port that gets used for charging. Um, and it can do offline data transfer. Okay. So there, there is that, but let's keep going. Uh, and, and there's also the ability for it to be a host where you can use it as like its own keyboard. And I think that basically came with a recent firmware update, but initially it couldn't really do that. Um, and the, the firmware updates are done totally over the air there. As far as I understand, you cannot, you can't sideload a, a firmware update onto it. You know, even if you connect the USB C port to a computer or the USB C cord to a, you know, the USB to a computer, uh, as far as I understand it, you cannot do a firmware update that way because there's nowhere to even download the firmware update file. Um, at least as of this recording that may, that may change in the future. Um, it has, you know, kind of your usual metrics for an e-ink device, like say a Kindle Paperwhite or an Oasis or something like that, where it's four weeks, you know, it's a month of running time. If you only use it for 30 minutes per day, I will say this, the battery life on this thing, tremendous. I've rarely had to charge it and I, and I have used it quite a bit. Like I really put this thing through some, through some paces. I mean, it's still like new, uh, but, but I really put it through its paces. Um, it can now. It can connect to cloud services. It can connect to Evernote, Dropbox, and Google Drive. No OneDrive, no Box, you know, none of that. But Dropbox, Evernote, Google Drive. Has a bunch of different languages that it works with. You can look into that. That's not that big of a deal. Uh, weight, it doesn't even weigh two pounds. Very, very light. Very light. So let's talk about the device overall. Um, it does not have any capability. Like, there's no Bluetooth on it. There's no capability of using a mouse on it. The bulk of the reviews that I have read for it and also basically where I land on it is that it works really well as a drafting machine, meaning this is not something that you would put together a finished novel on. You would do your first draft on it, but then you would either a, you know, download the file or work on it further say from Google drive where you, maybe you have it cloud backing up to, uh, or you could transfer it off, I guess, you know, onto your PC, uh, using, you know, USB. And there's where you would do the finished, uh, product. You can set up like there's, there's these three buttons on it, a, B and C where you can set up basically folders, uh, where maybe if you're working on multiple, uh, projects, like you're working on say three novels. Okay. Uh, you could just, you know, switch between folders, which could each have multiple files. Like you could do, uh, and this, I would recommend doing it this way. Basically you would do a separate text file for each chapter that you write. And I would recommend doing that for navigation's sake, because there aren't even arrow keys on this thing. You have to, they have like, they have special keys, you know, similar to like a window key, say on a laptop or, you know, on a, on a normal desktop machine. Uh, that allow you to, you know, use WASD, right? If you're a first person shooter fan, you know how this goes. Use WASD to basically control, you know, where the cursor is on this. Um, but you want to want, you wouldn't want to have to go looking through a very large document file. So you'd want to work in. So having the folders, having the three folders that you can put, 
you know, just a ton of, of different uh, documents into that's a good move. Like, I mean, that, that's, that's very smart. And I'd recommend using as many documents as possible. Uh, and the navigation via the keyboard, I don't really have a problem with that. Like, I don't mind that it doesn't have mouse connectivity. That's not an issue for me, uh, because I really wanted this to be an all in one writing device. Uh, but I wanted it to be an all in one writing device, start to finish. We'll talk about that. Um, so not having the mouse, you know, to, to, to navigate, that's fine. I like navigating with the keyboard anyway. I mean, I come from the school of thought, uh, basically the Linux school of thought is that if you need a mouse to, you know, enact a command, uh, you don't know your computer very well. And so, so I'm very used to doing tons of keyboard commands. So that's not really an issue for me. And the traveler, which is, you know, the device, the, the free write traveler, uh, comes with a very small guide, uh, you know, paper guide that gives, that tells you all the different keyboard commands so that you can navigate it. And, it, and it's pretty simple. I mean, even for somebody who can handle complex keyboard commands, these aren't complex, you know, whatsoever. I think anybody can really handle that. And once you use it enough, they become second nature very quickly because they are so simple. Um, so, you know, that, that I don't mind that again, I, I almost see it as a plus. So, you know, that's fine. Uh, the typing speed. So I am one of those guys who can type very, very, very fast. Uh, this is another one. I, I know I said that there are two issues. Well, this might actually be issue three. Um, and this is why ink screens haven't really been used more by, uh, by, you know, a lot of companies for a lot of different, uh, devices and projects. And that is the, the typing, you know, what you type and how long it takes for it to appear on the screen can take up to a half second, little, sometimes less, sometimes maybe even a little bit more. Uh, that's almost unforgivable. If you are a fast typer, if you are not a fast typer, that might not be so much of an issue, but you know, when, and, and if you're a touch typist, as in, you don't really look at the keyboard, you just type and go and you, you know, you're looking at it as it appears on the screen. There is a terrible disconnect when you're a touch typist and the words aren't instantly showing up on the screen. Okay. Now it'd be fine if you were copying say, uh, or, or, you know, doing notation from a document that's next to you, but I don't know why you would necessarily do that on using a free write traveler. Like that doesn't exactly make sense. Um, so that, that is a, that in my opinion, that's a big problem. And I don't really think, I mean, even, even Amazon has had to deal with this where they've gotten to the point that in their e-readers and their Kindles, you know, we're not even talking about the tablets. We're just talking about the e-readers where they're putting in, you know, processors that are getting closer to the range of like what a Pentium three used to be. You know, we're almost getting to where you're going to have two gigahertz processors inside of e-readers. Now that's to help like with processing PDFs and more complex, uh, e-ink content. Um, I am not a hundred percent sure what's what's in this, but I doubt it's a gigahertz, uh, as far as, uh, you know, process, as far as a processor goes. And, you know, even with the increased speeds that you see in Kindles handling that more richer text content, uh, is still a slow go. Um, and I say that as somebody who is a huge fan of his Kindle Oasis. I mean, I am a big fan. So, 
that that becomes that becomes a bit of an issue. Now, again, for some people who either aren't touch typists or don't type, you know, super quickly, uh, I don't think that that would so much be an issue. Um, and again, you know, you can keep in mind that if you are treating this as merely a drafting tool, perhaps that's okay, right? Because if you misspell something, it doesn't matter. It's just your first draft. So I can understand that mindset. Now, before I get into a little more of the review or perhaps what my issues were with this thing, uh, I will say it also does have a lock screen um, and that's good. Like I'm, I'm glad it does allow you to lock it uh, at first. Like I feel like that should be something that it, it asks you to set up as soon as you turn the thing on when you get it new. Uh, it does not. It's something you have to set up a lot of the, a lot of setup that you do for some of the setup, I should say, not a lot. Cause there's not a lot to do. It's such a simple device. Some of the setup that you do for the device has to be done through, uh, through a website, you know, through Astro house's website that they have set up. And that's where you can turn on and off certain features. You actually can't even control, um, the ability to turn on and off the lock screen from the device itself. I mean, you can unlock it, from the device. But as far as like, okay, I don't want the lock screen activated anymore. You have to actually go to a website to do that. Um, there, there are just little features like that. This, this starts to get into the issue. So let's start getting into them. There's little features like that where I want this device to be able to act completely on its own. I understand now you can use Markdown. I understand that it's not going to have the complexity of me being able to set up italics and see it directly on the screen or to put certain text in bold and see it directly on the screen. I can use Markdown for that. And that's fine. Um, like I, I, that I'm okay with that. And I get used to that in varying text editors, not that big of a deal. Um, but a lot of the, the, there really should be no feature that has to be activated over the air. That just, that should, in my opinion, that should not be that that's a, that's a no go for me, you know, right from the onset. And, I feel like that Astro House, and if they want to correct me, they're welcome to, you know, email into the show questions at SovereignTech.com and, you know, I might even read it uh, or, you know, read it on the show even and address it. Okay. And, you know, and say I was wrong, but I feel like when you go back to the original Kickstarter, this was much more sold. It was never sold as more than a word processor, but it was sold as, you know, pitched to you as an, you know, as something that was Basically, everything was on device and all inclusive. I feel like it relies way too much on the internet, way too much on its Wi Fi connection. And I don't like that for a few reasons. I mean, one of them is, you know, I, earlier I talked about where do you see yourselves in five years? And well, in five years, my, my greatest dream is to have nothing connecting via Wi Fi, nothing you know, have everything wired ethernet in, you know, whatever abode I happen to be in. That is a dream that I have. Okay. I don't want, you know, like there is no network for somebody to access effectively remotely. Right. Or, you know, from, from nearby, you know, there's no war driving is going to be done here. <laughs> that's just not, that's not going to happen among other security issues that come along with Wi-Fi, or other issues that people might want to bring up. Um, to say nothing of, you know, the one less device that I really have to worry about in the house. So I feel like it's way too reliant upon Wi-Fi. Um, I don't really like that it wants to, because even if, and I don't think there's a way to turn this off, even if you don't connect it to Google Drive, to uh, to Dropbox, or to Evernote, 
there's still a service that Astra House operates where all where everything you type gets backed up there. And you can go online and there it is. It's not encrypted. There's not, I mean, there's no real, and there's no, there's no 2FA involved, of course. Uh, and I think some people would be like, well, it's just, you know, it's just text documents that are drafts. Who the hell cares? Well, you never know. <laughs> if you want to think about that sort of way, you know, just give up on security entirely in your whole life, in my opinion. But I don't like that everything wants to back up that way. Uh, I'd be fine if you know, you had basically the option and I guess you could never turn the Wi-Fi on, but then you don't get firmware updates and that becomes an issue, uh, in, in my opinion, because there might be new features that come along. There's all kinds of things that might come along that help out. Maybe, maybe somehow they figure a way to increase the speed of when the text appears on the ink screen and they do that via software. I'm not opposed to that possibly happening. It could, I don't think so. I think it's a hardware issue, but regardless, um, this, this device is not ultimately what I'm saying is, is it's not offline enough for me. Now that's me. That's my opinion on it. I know there are people who already love this thing and where that's not an issue. They just don't care. They also probably don't worry if they're ever going to lose their Google account or phone number, but Hey, you know, we're all different. We're all in different worlds here, <laughs> or at least it feels like it. Um, so there's that. Okay. I don't like that. I'm glad that I can take the text files away from it via the USB cord, but you know, and just connect it to a PC. But again, even that it really relies on you much or you become not just reliant on Wi-Fi, but you're even more reliant upon the PC itself. What I would really love, I would have loved it if you know, it had a micro SD card slot. I think that would have been really cool. It would have been really cool if it could have doubled as, as an ebook reader, frankly, like what, an, in my opinion, what an easy feature to include that you could open PDFs on it. Uh, I mean, that'd be great even just for reference material, right? Where say you're writing something where you quote from another book or from research from heavy research out of a book or something like that, uh, where you could open the PDF and kind of cop to some degree, copy and paste from that, you know, directly on the device that could have been far more interesting. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it, it has a real lack ironically of offline functionality. Okay. That's great that I don't have to look at another screen and the screen is pleasant to look at because it is ink, you know, as compared to any other screen. Um, but yeah, that, that lack of offline functionality and, I mean, really forcing you to have almost forcing you to have an account with Astro house and so on. I, I think that's a fail for, for this. Um, now let's talk about a couple other things. Speaking of the screen, uh, for 600 bucks, absolutely. Yes. This device should have some kind of be either front lighting or back lighting, whatever that screen should be able to light up. Um, I could almost excuse not having a back, a backlit keyboard on it for 600 bucks, but not having the screen be backlit in any way. Uh, yeah, no, not, not for $600. Sorry. <laughs> like that, that's almost inexcusable, uh, for that. And now granted, yes, I only paid like 270. I know, but everybody else is going to hash out, you know, or well, okay. That's also not true either. And this is something that's, that's kind of pissed me off is that I have, I don't think this device has, and this doesn't have to do with this, with the device itself. Again, 
minus those, those, those quibbles. Okay. Like, you know, the, the text shows up too slow. It's too reliant upon a PC or an internet connection for my taste. And it doesn't have a backlit screen or backlit keyboard. More importantly, the backlit screen, or even if it's a frontlit screen, like a, like a, uh, you know, a Kindle Paperwriter or Oasis, that'd be fine with me. Okay. Um, so the device works. It has those problems and, and they're problems for me. Maybe they wouldn't be a problem for you. And so you find it very attractive. Maybe you have some disposable income and that's okay for you. Well, here's, here's kind of the, the lucky break for you is that, and this has, does not have to do with the device. The device works. I think it should do more, but it works. And I don't mean more as in it should be a traditional laptop or have a web browser on it. There's just little things, little things that it should do more than it does. Moving on. My main issue has to do with the company Astra House itself. Okay. For one, um, they must know that I have their free ride traveler. The amount of emails that I get from them saying, and, and, and in fact, they're very misleading emails because they'll say something like the headline will be, Oh, loving your free, your free ride traveler. Uh, here's a special, you know, offer just for you and, or free offer for you. And it's not a free offer. Like you think maybe, Ooh, they're coming out with some kind of new functionality and a firmware update or something like that. They're giving you a discount on buying not only a free ride traveler, but also a free ride, or you could buy another traveler for other people. And like there's, they're selling way too hard. I feel like I get one email from them at least per day. I already bought your product and you know, because it's attached to my free ride account. Stop fucking emailing me about this. You know, I already put the money down. If I want to buy another one for other people, believe me, I'm going to go to that site. And in fact, I'm going to be logged in with my account. If there's a discount you want to give it, give it to me then. Or once a week, maybe let me know, but it's not once a week. Not only that, but I haven't seen I think since release day, this device has not yet been available at full price, meaning it has been discounted since it came out. And I get it in the climate that we live in right now. Everybody's hard up for money. Believe me, I understand. Okay. Um, but it feels very disingenuous when years later, you know, you thought, I mean, yeah, okay. They're selling it for 400 and I still got it for a hundred dollars or so less than that. Great. But they put, they push and, and this, look, they're not Astro house. Isn't the only company that does this. There's plenty of companies, you know, kickstarted companies, crowdfunding companies that do this sort of thing. Um, it feels very disingenuous when you're telling people that, oh, you're only going to get this deal if you buy right now. And, and companies have done this since time immemorial. I understand. All right. But then for months now, to constantly be pushing and pushing and you're still not charging anybody full price. And you really don't get anything extra out of the deal for being there so early. It feels, it feels scammy, right? It just doesn't feel right. It feels disrespectful to the, you know, to, to especially your early adopters. Um, you know, I mean, if people love this sort of thing, do I want them to be able to get it for a deal? Would I want to get it for a deal? Of course I would. But they've been going months now where, and, and, and again, the emails are so annoying where they're saying, oh, get it now for 30% off or this amount off or blah, blah, blah. And they just, they don't stop. And it's like, well, 
you know, when is it ever going? I mean, it feels like kind of like on a, uh, with, with the Nintendo switch or gaming in general, where these companies will perpetually keep their games on sale just so it shows up in the sale tab. Right. And you know, just, just don't, don't pitch it for 600 bucks. Just tell us, no, okay. It's going to be $400. I just, I hate the, I hate the marketing tactic when a lot of the, the, dare I say the marketing aura ultimately, or the aura, not, not the marketing, but just the aura around this device is that this is an authentic device. This is a device to get you reconnected with your creativity, but then their marketing is feels incredibly inauthentic. So this really, you know, while the device works and I could see where for some people it would be incredibly helpful incredibly useful. And I could, I, and when I see people say that they love this thing, I believe them that it really works for them. And I'm just a quirky guy. I accept that. Okay. But I don't think, you know, they delivered, but I don't think they delivered on everything that they were initially promising. I think that the price tag is insane for a couple of the things that you don't get, but it just comes down to it's too little for too much. It, it really is. It really is. Uh, if this was being sold at the early bird price of 270 flat out, and they weren't pulling any marketing tactics saying like you're getting a deal when that's really all that it's worth. Uh, I I'd be far more favorable. You know, if this wasn't a touted as a $600 device or as a $600 device, basically all of my complaints would be nil, but you're charging me for a fairly premium laptop something that is missing a lot of premium functionality. And, you know, again, so for 600 bucks, no way. If this thing was 200, maybe even 300, you know, getting in the higher range of like, like a premium e-reader or something. Okay. Okay. Then, then you could almost call it a great device, but not at $600. I mean, that's, that's, it's outrageous. And their marketing tactics are outrageous. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a fail all around on that. That $600 is such a nasty sticking point, but it's there. So it does what it says. You might find it works very well as a drafting tool, but I didn't want, again, me, I didn't want a drafting tool. I wanted something that puts together, you know, that I have my polished novel. Like, I mean, word processors are that, you know, devices that just were a word processor. That's not a new thing. Those are actually very popular in the eighties and even in the early nineties where that's all that the device did, but it was a complete word processing experience to the point of even doing formatting and all kinds of other things. That's what I was wanting here. I was wanting a portable word processor of your, you know, from the eighties and like the early nineties. And I'm not getting that. Now I know that like there's the Neo two there's, and that's not by Astro house. There's some devices out there that actually really do perform that, that have been around for like 20 years and still get produced and made and sold around the world. I understand that those exist. You don't have to tell me. Um, I know. Okay. Uh, But I was really hoping that this would be it. And I mean, just again, the weight was ridiculous on this, the constant delays. uh, I know that's part and parcel of kickstarting, but you know, the biggest takeaway for me here is that it just proves or just, just bolsters my opinion that I'm just never doing crowdfunding again. Unless it's for, you know, again, like a little magazine, you know, like you can count on those, uh, like card games, you can pretty much count on those because there's whole businesses that, that, uh, you know, are the infrastructure of those, right. Be it printing presses or whatever else. 
uh, you know, other companies that they schlep it out to. And basically the person doing the crowdfunding is just the idea person. And, you know, that's great. But yeah, I, I just, I, I cannot, especially after this, even more so, I cannot recommend crowdfunding on any kind of major project like this, either build it and put it out there and sell it, you know, or otherwise I just don't trust it because it's too easy to do the bait and switch and in on multiple levels. So yeah, free right traveler. Again, if it was a $200 device, if I were to give it a score out of 10, you know, 10 being this fucking amazing thing that changed my life. Uh, maybe I'd give it a 10 at $600, you know, uh, no way it's, it's, it's a four at best. So there you have it. We'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. we got a big story to get into, and then we got to get into some q and I'll be back with you. Mad Max is a lone warrior searching for his destiny, while a tribe of lost children wait for a hero. And in a world battling to survive, they meet a woman determined to rule. Hold out for Mad Max. This is his greatest adventure. Mel Gibson in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, starring Tina Turner, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now playing at a select theater near you. Issues of privacy, security, and social engineering. It's HackSec. time for some more of that sovereign tech. And this is a story that, um, you know, we, we got into recently, we talked about 5g Had nothing to do with the health concerns. Um, we talked about 5g, the technical issues with that. We talked about 4k and all the problems around that and all the non-reality around that. And, you know, it's, it's important to understand that 5g and 4k are two, I guess you could almost call them, uh, integral technologies to the, the, the future. Okay. Uh, 5g even more so, but you know, one, like a lot of 5g, the way that that gets pushed to a lot of consumers revolves around 4k because you know, all people do is fucking look at screens and 4k content. Apparently I run ironically, that's probably the truth today, but <laughs> But regardless, um, 4G is, is a, is integral to selling the concept of, or 4K is integral to selling the concept of 5G to consumers when really 5G is all about ultimately smart cities and which smart cities are ultimately all about, uh, metadata and data collection on you and your habits and what you do. That's not an outlandish statement. And there are people who would say that unironically, they would make that statement as if it were benign. And in fact, you know, not just benign, but ultimately uh, a very welcome and positive thing, which I guess could fall under benign, but I think it means even more than that. I would argue <laughs> that 5G is not benign uh, whatsoever. And I am not the only one. And I said that we would close out the conversation around particularly those two technologies and debunking all of the, at the very least, the marketing around those technologies uh, to say nothing of anything else about them, you know, as far as like the hard technicals around them that, I mean, we certainly got into that as well. 
but I said that we would close this out almost as a trilogy. And this article from the guardian from this year, from 2020, it was actually back in January, but it's like I said, it's evergreen. It still holds true. And is back perhaps even more true now. Um, this is the end of that trilogy. Okay. And it's about dumb cities. In fact, the title is the case for making low tech quote unquote dumb cities instead of quote unquote smart ones. Um, and it's by Amy Fleming. So I want to read it here. It's kind of a lengthier article. I'm not going to read the entire thing because it is that lengthy, but I think we'll get the point across and it points at a direction that I'm starting to see signs of more people going, perhaps not so much in America, which there might be commentary on that, but I might save that for, for another time, but regardless, let's get into it. So here we go. Uh, the case for quote unquote, dumb cities. Uh, let's see. Ever since smartphones hooked us with their limitless possibilities and dopamine hits, mayors and city bureaucrats can't get enough of the notion of smart washing their cities. It makes them sound dynamic and attractive to businesses. Uh, I, in fact, I love that smart washing. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant, right? Because it is ultimately smart washing because who the hell really needs Bluetooth in their toothbrush? Moving on. What's not to love about WizKids streamlining your responsibilities for running services, optimizing efficiency, and keeping citizens safe into a bunch of fun apps? There's no concrete definition of a smart city, but high-tech versions promise to use cameras and sensors to monitor everyone and everything, from bins to bridges, and use the resulting data to help the city run smoothly. One high-profile proposal by Google's sister company, Sidewalk Labs, uh, to give 12 acres of Toronto a smart makeover is facing a massive backlash. In September, an independent report called the plans, uh, or called the plans, frustratingly abstract. Uh, in turn, U.S. tech investigator Roger McNamee warned Google can't be trusted with such data, calling the project surveillance capitalism. There are practical considerations too, as uh, Shoshana Sachs of the University of Toronto has highlighted. Smart cities, she wrote in the New York Times in July, of course that would have been July 20, 2019, will be, exceed, quote, will be exceedingly complex to manage with all sorts of unpredictable vulnerabilities, end quote. Tech products age fast. What happens when the sensors fail? And can cities afford expensive new teams of tech staff, as well as keeping the ground workers they'll still need? Quote, if smart data identifies a road that needs paving, it still needs people to show up with asphalt and a steamroller, end quote, she said. So, Stanley breaking in for a second already. Consider what the, you know, again, quote unquote, security experts that supposedly know what they're saying to the government, again, supposedly, okay. Uh, consider how terrifying they consider, you know, what's happening with, um, solar winds, right? You know, consider like, these are the issues that they're having. Now imagine that, <laughs> you know, entire cities are smart cities and all of that data and all of that control of that city is plugged into one trough, right? I mean, the nightmare scenario that these, again, quote unquote, security experts, or as I like to call them security liars, uh, or maybe we call them security soothsayers, uh, something like that. <laughs> uh, I mean, just imagine the nightmare that that would create if you had these smart cities, but then you had these same problems that they are so terrified of. And they're frankly inevitable. 
And everything that I said about, you know, the issues of scale completely apply to, to smart cities, but we'll keep, we'll keep reading here. Okay. Uh, there are practice, or we already read that part. Uh, Sachs pithily calls for redirecting some of our energy toward building quote, excellent dumb cities end quote. She's not anti-technology kind of like Stanley was saying earlier. It's just that she thinks smart cities may be unnecessary. <gasps> quote, for many of our challenges, we don't need new technologies or new ideas. We need the will foresight and courage to use the best of the old ideas. End quote. She says, wow, does that sound like someone I know who might be sitting in this very chair behind this very microphone named Brian Sovereign? Hmm. Amazing. I'm saying this, this kind of stuff for eight years now. Let's keep going. Like I said, trends happening around the world. Other people realizing much of what we've talked about concurrently. They're not, you know, I, I don't think they listen to this show. It's just that smart people are realizing that smart cities are a dumb idea and we need dumb cities. Traveled that grammar. Okay. Anyway, let's keep going. Sachs is right. In fact, she could go further. There's old and then there's old uh, and then there's old. And for urban landscapes, increasingly vulnerable to floods, adverse weather, carbon overload, choking pollution, and an unhealthy disconnect between humans and nature, there's a strong case for looking beyond old technologies to ancient technologies. Whoa. Who wrote this? Sure, Brian Sovereign wasn't doing a ghost right here. Reading on, it is eminently possible to weave ancient knowledge of how to live symbiotically with nature into how we shape the cities of the future before this wisdom is lost forever. Woo, preach. Keep reading. We can rewild our urban landscapes and apply low-tech ecological solutions to drainage, wastewater processing, flood survival, local agriculture, and pollution that have worked for indigenous peoples for thousands of years with no need for electronic sensors, computer servers, or extra IT support. But why don't they do this? Because these things, you just do them and they work and there's no more money to be made. Oh, shit. Who cares if it all falls apart? Who cares if it all becomes, you know, the next nightmare cyber espionage or cyber attack? Okay, who cares? It doesn't matter if in five years or less, it's all going to burn to the ground. Someone has to make a dollar right now. That's the attitude that these companies have that schlep all of this stuff, meaning smart cities and smart city concepts or even like 5G and whatever else. I mean, that, that was the whole conversation we were having around 5G and 4K. Okay. Is that like, or, or even, you know, we could get into 3d televisions and so many different things that get schlepped off to the consumer saying, this is the new hotness when none of it is actually creates an appreciable difference for the consumer ultimately, or at least not in the way that the marketing, you know, I mean, they're like, they're forcing this stuff upon you and saying it's in your best interests when the only interest really here is you know, just this, this corporation making more money or this government getting more data and more control. Reading on, it is eminently possible to, or no, we already read that part. Uh, this month, Julia Watson, a lecturer in urban design at Harvard and Columbia University's launched her book, Low Tech, Designed by Radical Indigenism. 
uh, with, anyway, it's the result of more than 20 years of traveling to research the original smart settlements through an architect's lens. She visited the Madan people in Iraq who weave buildings and floating islands from reeds, uh, the Zuni people in New Mexico who create waffle gardens to capture, store, and manipulate water for desert crop farming, and the Subak rice terraces of Bali. Watson walked the living tree root bridges that can withstand adverse weather better than any human-made structure, and that allow the Kasi Hill tribe in northern India to travel between villages during the monsoon floods. Quote, there are so many different ways you can rewild cities, uh, says Watson, and it's not just a case of plonking an ancient system in a city, but rather adapting complex ecosystems for different types of places with their own unique requirements. Uh, take a current proposal she's working on for the high-rise city of Shenzhen, uh, on the Pearl River uh, uh, estuary by Hong Kong. It was once a finish, uh, a fishing village, then a textile town, and it just skyrocketed, says Watson. Quote, all of the fish ponds and, and polders and dikes and wetlands that absorb all the water in that delta landscape are being erased. So the city is developing in a way that's erasing the indigenous resilience in the landscape, end quote. But you don't have to erase to go forward, she says. Quote, you can leapfrog and embed local intelligence using a nature-based traditional Chinese technology that's climate resilient, ecologically resilient, and culturally resilient, and we can make beautiful urban spaces with them as well, end quote. Uh, and they keep going on all these, you know, on all these different examples of where, no, no, you can do these things that are, and I know some people, especially listeners of the show, maybe want to bristle at the term sustainable, okay? Look, I want to make this point abundantly clear. Using these ideas that don't require uh, companies to exist or even the state, that could be the key here, uh, to exist perpetually and to have to constantly be doing road work or whatever kind of bullshit work that they keep coming up with as part of some new deal. Okay. Uh, and I say bullshit on that. What, you know, put whatever term in front of new deal that you want bullshit. Okay. Cause it's a government idea. These are ideas that you could put in place that can just sit there and basically, you know, just work and can work for a very long time and can be a part of where, I mean, they have very low, it's not necessarily even about sustainability. It's about low maintenance and talk about low cost. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think people consider are low cost, but when you consider a timeline of decades, or perhaps even hundreds of years, it's not really low cost because it's something that requires consistent maintenance, or maybe it's some kind of like a, a annual or monthly fee that comes attached to it as to where there are a lot of ideas. And the link is in the show notes for the story, because there's plenty more that get discussed. Okay. Where you can, res, you can solve so many problems that people talk about, say, even in something as crazy as a city, and there's an argument to make that cities are crazy. And I find it very interesting that during this quote unquote pandemic, that uh, people are leaving the cities in droves and there are, you know, like landlords in these cities who are freaking the fuck out that, uh, you know, that, that people are leaving these cities. Why? Cause it's hurting their bottom line. Makes you wonder where their priorities are, but regardless, you could fix so many of these problems, you know, natural disasters, even traffic or just the bustle of daily life, you could fix so much of this with not just, you know, old ideas from, I don't know, 50, you know, 70 years ago, something like that, but with ideas that are thousands of years old. 
and you could just do them once more or less and let nature take its course because that's half the reason that settlements developed there in the first place, because there were natural systems in place that protected human beings from the elements on their own. Why wouldn't you do these things? Well, I know why they don't get talked about or touted. It's because Google can't make a buck off of it or the state can't justify its existence by doing it, whatever the case may be. I know there are a lot of you who get, you know, freak out when you hear the word environmentalism or you hear sustainable or something like that. We're talking about low maintenance here, which is ultimately a good thing because that frees up more time for you to do other things for you to perhaps connect, not just with nature, which would be, you know, part and parcel of these ancient. And again, if you want to use the term sustainable solutions, but you know, not just connect with nature, but connect with yourself. Why would you argue against that? And when you know, when you have a better understanding of the fact that so, so many of these different ideas, like putting in, putting in smart electric meters that has, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, because what is that electric meter doing? Is it somehow like making your home electric use more efficient? No, it's tracking your, uh, use of electricity to a higher degree. Okay. And ultimately that just feeds data back to whatever company so that they can charge you more based upon your habits when your habits might be just what you need. I mean, and especially right now it's insane, but point being is that it's not about improving anything. It's about giving whatever, be it, uh, uh, you know, corporations or companies or, you know, governments or whatever. It's about giving them more data about you and ultimately allowing them to control you more. It's not you having more control in your life has nothing to do with that because the first thing that that smart meter is going to freak out about is if you set up some kind of rogue solar panel, hopefully not from, you know, related to solar winds, uh, you know, some rogue solar panel or even a, a windmill in your backyard, you know, that, that might uh, generate a little DC power for you. And it's going to realize, Hey, wait a second. What's this guy doing? Why can't we charge him as much this month as we did last month? What's what's happening here? None of these ideas when it comes to the smart city are ultimately about improving your life. Is it about making traffic more efficient? Well, I mean, maybe there are bigger questions to ask than how do we make sure that enough cars go, you know, at, at six or, you know, at nine 15 AM as compared to nine 17 AM. Now, perhaps you're not sold yet. You know what? Actually, there's another, another paragraph I want to read here. Um, it has to do with transport. Uh, as for dumb transport in these dumb cities, this is from the story. There can be no doubt that walking or cycling are superior to car travel over, over short urban distances, zero pollution, zero carbon emissions, free exercise. Um, you know, I mean, and, and they're making an argument for that, but this is the one I love this one about air conditioning. There's a dumb solution to the spread of air conditioning. One of the greatest urban energy guzzlers, more plants, right? So if your argument is, is that, well, we need to, you know, be smarter about the use of electricity. And that's why I like having a 5G connected smart meter outside of my house. Well, are you really getting at the root of the problem? Let's go. A study in Madison, Wisconsin found that urban temperatures can be 5% cooler with 40% tree cover. Green roofs with high vegetation density can cool buildings by up to 60%. Or you could just think like a bug. Architects are mimicking the natural cooling airflows of termite burrows. 
Uh, Mike Pierce's 350,000 square foot uh, Eastgate Center in Zimbabwe's capital Harare, completed in the 1990s, is still held up as a paragon of dumb air conditioning. All it needs are fans and uses a tenth of the energy of the buildings next door. Um, and there are there's just tons of other examples within this of everything that, you know, examples of where, OK, we need this in modern civilization. How do we do that? And you're trying, you keep trying to think of, okay, what can we connect to the internet to make this better? When maybe that's the inherent issue is trying to go with the smart way instead of the dumb way that could work right now. But again, nobody wants to go with the dumb way, not because it doesn't work better than the smart way, but because somebody isn't making a dollar off of it. And if that is our modus apprendi, if that is our central driving force for everything we do, we will do X because it makes Y dollars. If that is the first thought on our mind is how much money do I make off of this effort? I think we're screwed as a species. Another sovereign tech axiom, and it's not mine. It actually comes from uh, someone who I, I've, I've called my, my schoolmaster. Okay. It comes from Max Turner guy who, you know, talk about old, guy who was around a couple hundred years ago. Uh, he said, the individual is the measure of all things. Now, I, I hold that as maybe my highest axiom. The individual, I mean, and, and that's without getting into what is the individual and all that. Certainly there's conversations to be had there. But the individual is the measure of all things. The individual, not the dollar, not the gold, not even the Bitcoin. Those are not the measure of all things. The individual is the measure of all things. And what is the purpose of the individual? The purpose of the individual is to be happy. Can money help with happiness? Oh, you bet your ass it can. In this world that we live in today, no doubt about that. Is it happiness in and of itself? No. Is it just a medium of exchange? It's what it's supposed to be. I feel like that when it becomes the, the central operating concept on whether or not we do a thing, it becomes much more than just a medium of exchange. I'm not here to talk against money. In fact, during the Q and a, we'll, 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 we have a question about money and we're going to talk about it. You know, what is like, what is, a, what is good money? What's a good way to do money and so on. And I'll answer that. But that is, this is a major, major problem that we have to consider, okay? And, you know, the idea that, you know, how do you help the individual? How do you, you know, allow the individual to meet its goals? And you could say, well, you know, as humans, um, one of the things that we're really good at, and it might even be our ultimate survival tool, is not, no, it's not the opposable thumb, is the fact that we build communities, we are a social species. Okay. And I mean, we can get into big arguments around species and, and there certainly is one to have around that, but to talk a little more conventionally, um, you know, without getting all galactic brain about it, let's, let's do it. Okay. The individual, as it is something to, you know, to, to, to overcome the challenges that it meets in nature, uh, that it creates communities. Okay. Uh, you know, one could argue that, I mean, that like, that's the heart of civilization, right? Is the community. 
can you really have a, a what would you know count as a civilization uh, with one person? You know, <laughs> no, not really. But something we're really exploring throughout this entire episode that speaks to you know the issue that we talked about at the top, right, with solar wind and so on. Uh, you know, and, and all of these different, you know, cyber, all this different cyber espionage and, and cyber attacks and everything okay, going on. There is a certain interlocking of the evolution of the individual, the civilization that they live within. But ultimately, so while the individual very much powers the civilization, you know, that he happens, he or she or Z happens to live within, okay. Um, you cannot ultimately understand or help this civilization or species, even if you want to go that far, without understanding how that's interlocked with the environment that you live within, be it the planet, whatever. And I'm not making any kind of crazy environmentalist case. I am saying that there is a certain triumvirate or triune aspect. How about we use triune? Ooh, that's getting religious. There's a triune aspect to the evolution and the going forward of the individual. And it's completely attached to the community that that individual be, you know, could become a part of. And then that in itself is attached to its environment. And I don't just mean the environment as in like, you know, the, the, the plants and the trees. I don't mean that when I say environment, I mean, overall, like it's not just nature. There's a social environment. There's, you know, there's all different aspects. It's every aspect of what is around you from the home you live in, all kinds of things. It's not, again, it's, I'm not making an environmentalist case here, but these things are intertwined and the health of one is ultimately related to the health of the other. And it is a circle. No one's talking about recycling. Stop, stop. All these terms are co-opted by people who are looking for government solutions and other crap that is that none of it is ever going to work. But we have to understand that interconnectedness and understand that, I mean, like, like, look, nature doesn't give a shit about money. Okay. You know, like I, I always say, put a credit card in front of a dog, you know, it'll just look at you like a four-legged idiot. So you cannot think about things in those terms. You have to think broader, bigger. There's the entire issue that we didn't even get into and the article doesn't really get into around the psychological health of the species <laughs> or of the individual, even when he is constantly being watched. That is a very real thing, a very real point that we brought up many times on this show. I mean that, you know, a smart city is inherently for it to work, you know, is all like surveillance has to be a part of the equation. It has to the ability to extrapolate what you are doing any given moment is a integral part of a smart city. I would argue that no smart city should exist. But if you argue that, well, no, there could be really great things done with smart cities and look, there's a burgeoning population and this is how we got to do it to blah, 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 blah. Well, then there needs to be cities of refuge around the world where you can get the fuck away from it all every once in a while, at least. I'm not going to meet you middle of the road. That's where you get run over. But if you're going to make the argument for smart cities and you know how, how it, it's necessary for humanity to continue for the herd to move on. And I'm not making that argument. 
But if you're going to make that, I would argue just as strongly that there needs to be dumb cities as well. Maybe I'd go so far as to argue that there doesn't need to be any cities, but that's a whole other conversation. And, you know, we could get into more utopian aspects and maybe at some point we will. But bottom line being is that there are great cases to be made for this and we need to look at what are the, what are the underlying interests in pushing a lot of these technologies? Where do they ultimately go? And are there alternatives? Because that's, you know, something that comes up like with any new technology, 4k, 5g, whatever. No one ever bothers to ask, wait, are there better alternatives? I'd love to hear that. I'd love to have those, the, you know, the, the, those questions get asked. I mean, like social media, same thing. I mean, so many people know just how, how, how harmful social media is to not just the individual, but to civilization, to humanity as a whole. I mean, and there's plenty of papers drawn up about this uh, and plenty of research, you know, done about this, plenty of studies. I mean, you, you know, it's unavoidable. I mean, just, it's one of the most prevalent things talked about on the internet, ironically on social media. And yet none of those, as far as I've seen, almost none of these studies or none of this research ever asked the question, what's the alternative to social media? It always comes down to how to responsibly interact or how to mitigate the effects of social media. No one really wants to go so far as to say, well, maybe social media just shouldn't be a thing and we could have an alternative. I've never seen research explore that. And I'm certainly not seeing anything like that with smart cities. You have some people who, you know, talk about surveillance and blah, 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 but you know, then they pick up their smartphone and move on and see what's happening on Twitter. Right? So anyway, dumb cities, is that the future? Well, I'm sure that's a conversation we'll be having further because times they are changing. I'll be right back with some more sovereignty. Hey, baby, I know, I know you are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to Fastmail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. Fastmail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup. And it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo! Let's get back to the show. Your questions, the man of tomorrow's answers. Email questions at sovereigntech.com. Time for important messages. think we should wrap this show up with some Q&A, baby. Uh, <laughs> it's been a little while since we've gotten in the Q&A segment. Normally, we'll, you know, we'll get in game talk. We'll get in the climax. But I think we're going to wrap up this episode uh, that celebrates eight years of Sovereign Tech. And, you know, really, like the 
what we, we need to end it off with celebrating really the listeners and getting in the listeners in on this is my point. But just to finish off with the last segment, there are a lot of big ideas, a lot of things that need to be explored more and discussed as it relates to dumb cities. I mean, we could do a whole year's worth of shows around the concepts behind dumb cities, but I really wanted to highlight that it's an important thing that really, no matter what I think ideological spectrum you're coming from, there is an argument to be made for dumb cities. Okay. Even if you're the kind that thinks smart, that smart cities is a good thing. There's a good case for why, you know, they should exist concurrently. So anyway, let's move on to the Q and a, let's get into these questions. And we got a couple of really, really good ones here. Uh, in fact, one that I had highlighted, there's two that I had highlighted and I want to make sure I get both of them in. So here we go. Uh, this is from the telegram group. Um, a Q and a question. If you haven't already answered it, I believe you once claimed Bitcoin should outperform all monetary currencies. Boy, Bitcoin's on a tear, isn't it? Uh, you know, new record highs, above 20,000 into the 23, uh, $23,000 USD range, uh, moving on anyway, uh, that would also include gold. Why do you think Bitcoin should outperform gold or any physical currency that, uh, that's genuinely desired? Isn't the most private monetary transaction, the one that isn't digital. So a few years ago, um, I did discuss this. Uh, I'm, a couple points. One, I'm kind of intrigued that, especially when it's doing, you know, 23,000, I'm kind of intrigued that there does seem to be a mini libertarian slash ANCAP kind of pushback against Bitcoin right now. Uh, I, I'm kind, kind of seeing like little rumblings of that when, you know, yes. And I know like you have your Peter Schiff's and some others who have never been supportive of Bitcoin that are into, you know, the whole sound money camp. Right. Um, but you know, libertarians certainly I think are, were, were absolutely, uh, integral to the growth of Bitcoin and Bitcoin itself is really based upon, I would argue very libertarian, uh, or sound money, you know, principles or, you know, uh, classical liberal economic principles. Right. If you want to, you know, use those terms, whatever. Um, is the, you know, is the most private money or the most private monetary transaction, the best one? Yes. Is, does that mean that it cannot be inherently uh, a digital transaction because all digital transactions can be tracked? I think there's really two ways to look at this. Okay. And, and I, I want to get into it because it's not a simple yes or no question. So years ago, what I was going to say is I had done a, you know, I, I had brought up the topic a few times about what's what I called the war on cash. I'm not the only person to call it that. I know others have. And basically while the war on cash was meaning getting people away from using the greenback as in not from what, you know, the U S the United States from deciding monetary policy or from the value generated by the United States or decided by the United States right? Because it's all basically, you know, the U S dollars basically backed by nuclear weapons. It's not backed by anything, uh, not, not by any like real economic force or, I mean, it's not backed by gold. It's not backed by, you know, any, any precious metals or any commodity, unless you want to call nuclear weapons a commodity, but that's a whole other conversation. But it was all about, you know, getting the war on cash was all about getting people away from using or from having monetary transactions 
that were more or less not traceable. Now, look, the U.S. dollar is traceable, right? It has serial codes. I mean, and, and that's tracked as it goes through banks and ATMs and everything else, right? Um, so the U.S. dollar itself is is fairly traceable, okay? Uh, and that might be where gold becomes attractive. Again, splitting gold, you know, that's the argument that a lot of uh, Bitcoiners would put against gold is that, well, you can't infinitely split gold and it's not like the most practical uh, way to, you know, way to transact. Um, and I agree and understand that case. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and I've, I've given whole conference talks about, in fact, the, the title of one was, is Bitcoin more real than gold? And I talked about cowrie shells and, and all this. So certainly this is a subject, you know, that I, that I have thoughts on and, and have talked about now gold here's, here's really, again, this is why it's not a yes or no question because here's, here are the questions you, you need to answer. Well, first off, the most important thing for a currency to be is decentralized. Now, when I say a currency being decentralized, I don't necessarily mean that like it's on a bunch of different servers, you know, and it's a peer to peer network or something like that. I mean that it is not something tied to the weaponry of a government. Okay. It's not tied to the monetary policy of any region. You want a currency that doesn't give a fuck about law. Okay. Or that doesn't give a fuck about who's in power. That's what you want. Bitcoin, ultimately the technology itself, not the value based on, Oh, is it worth 22,000 today or $23,000 per Bitcoin today? Okay. Not that question, but the question of does it, does the technology care about who's in power or what laws are in place? No, it does not. That makes it a very, very good currency. Gold is the same deal. Gold does not really care who's in power. Okay. Um, or what the monetary policy ultimately of, you know, whatever government happens to be, it is legally and regionally agnostic. And that's great. Okay. Like that, that's a very important thing for any viable currency to have. Okay. Now the next question you have to answer, do you want to be able to buy things over the internet or not? If you want to be able to be interconnected with the entire planet and buy things via, you know, not just, it's not even a matter of like the internet of via a website. If you want to buy it via phone line, you know, over, uh, I mean, cause remember credit cards originally, which are still the most used, uh, uh, way of transmitting value over the internet, credit card numbers were originally designed for phones. It was not designed. That's why they have numbers. Okay. Because, you know, on, on a phone, you have numbers, right? Uh, you know, to dial a phone number. It was not, credit cards were not designed for the internet. Bitcoin was a currency designed for the internet. Now we could get into technologies around Zcash and then you can have the people that come out and say, well, we can, you know, bake the, you know, we can bake cryptography more around Bitcoin. So you don't really need Zcash and you can still have those private transactions and blah, blah, blah. And we don't have to talk about that to answer the question is the most private and agnostic as in regionally or legally agnostic, uh, uh, you know, currency, is that the most preferable way to, or you think to, you know, money to transact with? Yes, that's what you want. Okay. But it's not just about, 
I feel like this is something that a lot of economists, they claim that they get it, but I don't know that they necessarily do. It's not just about the currency. Okay. Uh, it's also about what is, what is the, the avenue with which I purchase? What is the avenue with which I buy things? Okay. And when you add that in, right. I mean, the, one of the brilliant things about Bitcoin was that again, it's the, I mean, I know this is Bitcoin one one but one of the brilliant things was that it was the money and the transmitter at the same time. It was the dollar and PayPal in the same technology. Okay. That's really, really key to understand. What makes a great currency is, is it's as much, you know, to answer that question relies as much upon how you purchase things. Is it exchanging, you know, is it hand to hand in, you know, in person or is it, or do you, is it something you do remotely? If it's something you do remotely, look, here's the reality. Gold sucks as a remote currency. Yes. It's regionally and legally agnostic. You know, it doesn't care about laws. It doesn't care about who's in power. Okay. But it also can't transmit itself, you know, over long distances. And you could say, well, then we have cards that represent the gold, you know, via numbers. Yeah. But then that becomes a traceable, you know, serial code more or, less, or whatever you use for that system, it becomes traceable. So that's an issue. Now I would argue that if you, you know, even if you wanted to do more, you know, person to person transactions, I think you could develop either technologies or something. I mean, and whether it goes back to the old, like, you know, money stones, right. That you find on the islands where they chip away. And that was a record for the entire island's economic history and everything. Um, I mean, in, in fact, in that sense, you know, the most ancient forms of money that we know of weren't, uh, really, you know, private transactions because there was a open ledger for the whole world to see, or and at that time, of course, the whole world was an Island. So again, to really answer the question, um, it's, you can't just say what is, I mean, yes, the best form of money is the one that is private and is, you know, agnostic to laws and, and region. Okay. But then you have to answer the question of, okay, but how are you buying things? Like, what is the general mode within which you buy things? Is it person to person? Is it remotely? How does that go? And then that creates a whole other situation. So I kind of like, I have an answer for you, but then also I don't because it depends on what kind of society or civilization, um, or market that you're trying to create and that you're espousing. Okay. If it's what we have today where everything's over the internet, Bitcoin is in my opinion, far superior to gold. Um, and it's superior to cash because most people will buy over the internet, right? If it's more in person, then that changes. And if it's something where you are actually going to the store and you're not ordering it or whatever, then, um, then gold might be able to work in that sense. Okay. But that's, Again, that that's, those are the questions that you have to answer. It depends on what does your marketplace look like? Is it remote? Is it in person? How, you know, wh- how does that work? And there become, there becomes different answers for that. But even then, I think even if it's in person, um, technologies could kind of be devised on a more local, on a smaller scale. And then I mean a much smaller scale. We're talking between, you know, less than 250 people, right? Within Dunbar's number, you know, within a much smaller scale, 
uh, you would be transacting. And then I think you could do kind of like we were talking about at the top of the show, you can do security, right? Even cybersecurity, right? Within those numbers. It's when you get into the thousands or the higher hundreds and the thousands or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people where you start to really run into issues. So I hope I, I hope you don't feel like I was dodging your question. I'm not, it's just, you know, what kind of marketplace are you trying to set up? And then that answers what the best type of currency is. Okay. Um, I know there are people who are like, well, you know, we really should have something that has intrinsic value. Bitcoin doesn't have intrinsic value. I've always argued against that. It's just not true. The fact that Bitcoin can inherently within its existence as the, you know, monetary unit itself, and then be transmitted within the same technology is its inherent value. And in a world where we do buy things remotely, it's brilliant. You know, now, is there a public ledger? Yes. You could solve that through some cryptography. Uh, can that be broken? Can that cryptography, you know, be broken? Sure. But then I don't know how you would do remote transactions and not somehow have a fairly open ledger or a necessarily a way of tracking it back to you. Ultimately, that doesn't come down to a question of, well, we cracked the code, you know, we cracked the, uh, the encryption. So there's not really a good answer there. Now, does that be, does that speak against money overall? I'm not saying that it does, but I am saying that you really have to tailor things based upon, I mean, that's something you really have to think about from the ground up. It has to be like central to the philosophy within which you set up your marketplace or community in the first place. And that's much of what we're talking about throughout this episode. And, you know, I have to admit, I feel like it really speaks to just a larger, broader issue that the dumb cities conversation was trying to address or perhaps starting to address that, that we have with human civilization. And that is we do so much in, in such a ad hoc way. Um, like a lot of our ideas, even including around things like what is currency, what makes a great currency and so on. A lot of it's a band aid. It's not in and of itself, like the best, you know, we, I hate to use the word holistic, but we'll go with it. We don't really think about things in general. We don't think about things in a holistic way, but we never have really planned, you know, from the ground up. Okay. This is what our marketplace is going to look like. And thus we decide what the best currency is going to look like. Just like I was saying that credit cards were designed for, you know, the telephone system, not for the internet. And you know, it worked great for that, but then it somehow, you know, ad hoc had to get slapped on to the, you know, becoming the, uh, uh, transaction method du jour for the internet. So we're, we're way too, yeah, ad hoc and, and band-aidy with, uh, with what we try, you know, with our solutions and how we try to solve things, uh, as now, I mean, granted, you know, at the heart of innovation is, everything getting upended, but we never seem, you know, as, as humans in general, we never seem really willing, uh, to accept that innovation does upend everything and that everything tomorrow might have to change, even though we can adapt really quickly. That's the sad part, right? Is that, you know, I mean, for example, smartphones. So smartphones have been around since basically 2007. We adapted like almost overnight to, the use of them, not to say that we, I mean, unfortunately we didn't pay enough attention to the negative aspects around them. Um, but regardless, 
you know, we just, we took it as, as normal. I mean, it's amazing to consider that inside of 10 years, less, far less, uh, the idea that we do everything via smartphone was, was just instantly accepted. That's remarkable in human history for a change to, to take on that quickly, but it just shows that we can adapt. Uh, that quickly. And that has to do, I mean, there's a big conversation around that. How are we able to adapt? How are we able to mentally cope with such dramatic changes? Um, That speaks to the science fiction method, which we talk about a lot on the shows that science fiction is not just fiction. It's a way of understanding the possibilities of the future and what we're grappling with right now. So these are important things. These are ways of being able to, they are tools much like the scientific method is a tool of how to engage the universe. And much like you know, the scientific method is about predicting outcomes. Science, the science fiction method is very similar in that way as well. And we have these tools now so that we can adapt, but we're still pretty shitty at it. You know, we're still, we're still trying to figure that out. How do we, you know, uh, cope with, uh, like really, you know, dramatic shifting innovations, uh, or, you know, dramatic shift innovations, I guess I should say. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that's something to keep in mind. And, and that's something I really appreciated when we start talking about dumb cities is that, okay, no, how about we be really intentional from the ground up of how this really works, not just slapping smart, this or smart washing, like they said, not just smart washing everything and pretending that somehow it made everything better when perhaps it did quite the opposite. So anyway, um, Let's shift off from that. And I want to get to another question. Uh, both of these questions, uh, you know, I, I keep people anonymous unless they, they, you know, they want me to specifically address them. Uh, I will say both of these questions came from two very longtime listeners and they are both, uh, I think I can safely say they're, they're, I mean, just, just fantastic ladies. And I, I really appreciate them sending in these questions. Uh, so let's get into the next one. This came to the email address questions at sovereigntech.com, And then we'll wrap the show up. And it, it was, uh, the subject line for the email was MP3 player question. Here we go. My iPod nanos screen started to get funky. And frankly, I'm done with iTunes. That software is the biggest pile of crap. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, using it on a windows machine. It's probably better on Macs. No, not really. <laughs> but, but that was kind of you to say, you know? Uh, so I'm looking for a replacement. I use my iPod almost exclusively to listen to podcasts and audiobooks. I download all files, transfer them onto it, and convert them to audiobooks so I can listen at 2x speed, which is not 2x. Uh, are there any MP3 player? Right, because in fact, if you're using an iPod Nano, so I know you're using an older one, um, maybe like Gen 6 or something like that. But yeah, iPods now, iPods were kind of the first to do this, not where they told you the exact multiplier, like that it was exactly 2x but you could choose to like go with faster or fastest. And I remember my not iPod nano, but my iPod classic, my seventh generation iPod classic. Uh, when I discovered that it had that functionality, uh, that, that was, that was insane, you know, cause then I really could listen to like an entire week of free talk live and catch up pretty quickly. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, of course now, you know, listening to things at two X or more is kind of the norm on a lot of different apps. Um, so anyway, let's continue with, uh, with her question here. Are there any MP3 players that play audiobooks as well, as well as iPods? Um, my old Sansa made, ooh, boy, that's a name I haven't thought of in a while. Uh, my old Sansa made everyone sound like chipmunks, right? Because it didn't do a good job of, 
of uh, speeding it up. Um, I'd rather not use my phone, but if I have to switch to that and uh, what are the best audio players for downloaded audiobooks and podcasts? Uh, I don't want to use a podcast app. I'll admit that's interesting that, that you don't, um, but we're going to run with it. That's okay. So uh, I'll give you a couple different options here. So, and the unfortunate rub is, is that like you experienced with the Sansa, uh, and older MP3 players. I've had some ones from like creative. Uh, they all do this where they, yeah, you end up with the chipmunk sound. Like they, they do not post process the sound to where you get the same tone, just a faster tempo or a faster speed. Uh, and that sucks. Okay. And actually outside of very specific apps within the, um, app store as in, you know, the Apple app store ecosystem. Uh, most of the ones in the app store, I think do a terrible job of that as well uh, on, cause I have of course uh, an iPod touch. Um, and, and that's been a real challenge for me to find a, you know, to find an app that would do the job that wasn't say a traditional podcast app. And that just would work well for audiobooks outside of um, audible. Now, so I'll give you some options here, but I'll tell you what I think is the best option for you is to just buy an older Android phone. Okay. And because it's so purpose built, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, don't worry too much, you know, about it having like the latest software updates and all this other stuff. You might want to worry about that. And look, you can get you know, like an Android go phone for far less than hundred bucks. I mean, is about as much as any traditional MP3 player that is just an MP3 player uh, would cost you today. And you're just going to get so many great options with that. And you never, you don't have to log into, or at least you don't have to log into your standard Google account. And you could just, you know, create a new Google account as you, you know, as you set up the device, um, or you could eschew that entirely, go with something that, you know, might work better with say, um, you know, lineage OS, if you wanted to go that route, but the best, so here's the thing, even if the idea that you wanted to go with is, you know, just some like separate Android device and, and it, it can be a, you know, a phone technically, but you never put a SIM card in it. So you never activate it as a phone and you just use it as well, as I often say, a glorified MP3 player. I mean, and there's a lot of options, you know, with these to get, and especially one, if it has an SD card slot, because then you can just, I don't know, swap out the SD card, or you can just connect it with USB, whatever, you know, that gives you options where you can have, I don't know, 128 gig Hell, You know, most Android phones now will do 512 gig cards in them. Uh, so for, you know, all told less than a hundred bucks or so, or maybe about 120, 130, something like that. I mean, you can have a 512 gig you know, MP3 slash audiobook slash podcast player, which is really great. Uh, the best, the absolute best audiobook player out there outside of Audible, because I'm guessing you don't want to deal with that, is it's called Smart Audiobook Player, and it's by a guy, it's just a one-man show. You know, he's he's one one guy who just who's been developing this app forever. Uh it does cost you can get like a uh, like a free version, but I definitely recommend, you know, if you, if you can, if you can, you know, figure out how to, how to make it happen on whatever Google account you decide to use with it, 
Um, or if you're just going to do it on your phone, it's easy enough for you to get your hands on it. You know, I mean, again, it depends if you're wanting to attach credit card information and all that crap. Um, but I mean, he's a guy who I think you could actually probably reach out to him, <laughs> you know, and his name's Alec, uh, Alex Kr- uh, Krachenko, I think is how you'd say that. And he'd probably send you the APK, <laughs> you know, to, to sideload if, if you really wanted. Um, so that, you know, that's something to consider, but it's called smart audiobook player. I'll link to it in the show notes in the play store. I'll link to it in the show notes though. Um, it is awesome. And I've recommended this many times and everybody that I've ever recommended it to said, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. Um, and it does not, I mean, the chipmunk effect doesn't happen. There's a great equalizer built into it. Uh, you can actually kind of over, what do I want to call it? Not overclock but you can enhance or you can like make the volume louder, which can be a real problem with audiobooks, where the, the, the volume of the audiobook can be significantly lower than, uh, you know, any normal audio MP3 file that you play of anything else. And this allows you to, you know, to pump that up and it's, it's a gorgeous app and it does really great file management. I mean, I love this thing and use it almost daily. I use smart audiobook player. So, but that's for Android. Um, for iOS, I'll give you a recommendation on that as well. And that is, it's called Bookmobile. This is another one that you have to pay for uh, because, I mean, certainly an option to go for with an MP3 player is to get an iPod Touch. Um, and Bookmobile will do the same thing and, and it does not run into the chipmunk issues. And here's the real censure with Bookmobile is that it will allow you to using, um, you have to do it through your web browser, but it will let you send audio files to your, your iOS device without using iTunes. Absolutely key. <laughs> Absolutely key. Uh, but it does a great job on that, but I would go with the Android option uh, just because you can have the expandable memory and everything. And smart audiobook player is just far and away. I mean, it's great for podcasts too. It's just far and away that one of the best apps on any smart device across the board. It's fantastic. I wish it would run on, you know, on like windows or Linux or something. I mean, I could set up, you know, an Android layer and I don't want to do that, but, uh, but you know, you could go that far. Uh, the other option that you could go with, and it does a pretty good job on Android, not so much on iOS, uh, but VLC, which is totally free. Uh, VLC does a great job of, and you can change the playback speed. Uh, the only problem is, is that I run into with VLC a lot of times where it doesn't remember where I left off and the bookmarking features on VLC aren't exactly top notch. So that's, that's where I run into issues there, but basically, I, I mean, you could even, you know, actually with, with Android, if you have the Google files app, which I do recommend, I mean, cause if you're already using Android and you have the play store there, you know, Google's already got a rootkit on you. Why not? Uh, Google, Fi- the Google files app will actually play um, podcasts. It'll play MP3s. It has a built-in MP3 player that allows for uh, controlling the uh, the speed, you know, where you can listen to it at 2X and so on. It does a, I mean, it, it's actually pretty impressive. Um, so, you know, there's a, when it comes to Android, there's a lot of options there. There are no great independent MP3 players that do really, really well with the uh, sped up sound. Every, every one that I've tested seems to fail. And I've looked around, I've tried, believe me. Uh, so I always settle on just using an older Android phone 
and then putting on, you know, either VLC or even the Google Files app, or if I can, you know, put on smart audiobook player uh, and go from there. So, you know, that those those are your options. I'll link to Bookmobile and Smart Audiobook Player, and I guess I'll link to VLC as well, uh, you know, in, in the show notes so that you can just click on it, frankly, if you are listening to it on your smartphone. I mean, I, I, I get the sense that you're not, which I think is awesome. Uh, so Because I'm a big fan of having that separate device. That's part of the reason I have an iPod Touch, uh, so that I don't have to carry around my phone all the time to consume whatever media I care to consume. Um. You know, Plex is another great option, uh, but that, 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 that's not there yet. And I want it to get there, uh, with audiobooks, And I will tell you when it gets there, because that's going to change everything in my opinion, when Plex becomes a really great audiobook option. Um, but it, it's not there yet. Uh, I did, you know, I actually, I had it in the show notes. Plex allows for two factor authentication now, which I heartily recommend everybody set up. But again, this isn't for Plex. This is to talk about how to play MP3s. Yeah, smart audiobook player. That's really your top choice, in my opinion. Um, so anyway, we'll wrap this up. Thank you so much uh, to all the listeners as you continue to send in questions. Of course, we'll get to them. I know we haven't done a Q&A in a while uh, or a Q&A segment in a while, but we got one in here. And uh, well, it's episode 397. That means episode 400 is right around the corner. Like I said, 2021, it's going to be pretty exciting. We'll leave it at that. Uh, of course, if you want to donate to the show, just go to SovereignTech.com. You can find the donation tab there. And plenty of ways to do so. I'm honored. I've gotten other donations recently. Thank you so much. Uh, you no idea how much that And, uh, of course, frequent our sponsors. And I will see all of you woo, on the other side for many more years. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech, an Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. No zoonoids were harmed in the making of this podcast.